Good everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today I've got with us Major David McBride. Major David McBride is an Australian whistleblower. He's a former British Army major and an Australian Army lawyer. And before I ask David to come into the conversation, I really just want to paint a picture because from someone in the public who's heard the name David McBride, the Afghan files, the Brereton report, I want to put all these pieces of the puzzle together so that when David comes into the conversation, things are making sense and we can build out from that. So everything I mention is going to lead us to where we are today. The first thing is that David studied law at Sydney University. He then went on to do a second law degree at Oxford University. And in fact, I think he's got three law degrees. I do, yeah. Uh, amazing. He then joined the British Army and served in Germany. He then uh, went on to live a life of the civilian life and in 2003 went to campaign for the seat of Coogee in the New South Wales. That's right. State Very election. well informed. Yeah. <laughs> And then after that, we he went on to enlist in the Australian Army as a lawyer. He served two tours of Afghanistan in 2011 and 2013. And then he received the Combat Services Medal. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. Beautiful. And then he was medically discharged for post-traumatic stress disorder in 2017. That's correct. Very good. <laughs> top mark so far from a lawyer. Mm. But this is where why we've got David McBride in here. In 2014 to 2016, David provided the ABC, a media outlet, with information about war crimes, allegedly committed by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. In 2018, he was charged with several offences related to whistleblowing, including three counts of breaching the Defence Act for being a person who is a member of the Defence Force and communicating information, and also charged under the Crimes Act an offence for a Commonwealth official to disclose information without authorisation. Thereafter, the ABC building was raided, David's home was raided, and from there, um, and I'm, the timeline is a bit scarce for me, but there was an investigation done by Major General Paul Brereton where he found credible information that war crimes were committed by Australians in Afghanistan, this is known as the Brereton Report. So a lot of the times I get questions about the Brereton Report, it's simply a report that verified what David was saying was true. And from there, what has happened is that in Australia we've got what's called the Public Interest Disclosure Act. It's an Australian law protecting whistleblowers. And basically how it works, and three-time lawyer will correct me if I'm wrong, that in an organisation under the Public Interest Disclosure Act, in an organisation, if something is wrong and you want to make it right, you go straight to the authority in that organisation and bring it to their attention. And then if they're not doing anything about it, that's under this act, you can now take it to the public for something to take place, for some action to take place. And that's exactly what David did. Under the Public Interest Disclosure Act, he took this uh, to the media and, of course, that's when things spilled over. Now, just last month on the 22nd of October, David's uh, defence team sought immunity from prosecution in the ACT Supreme Court. And under the Public Interest Disclosure Act, that's how important that act is, the Australian government didn't allow it to go ahead based on national security. So under this act, you can have two witnesses to testify to gain immunity 
and the Australian government wouldn't let it go ahead based on national security and this is where we are today. David's still on bail and David McBride, the hero, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Rita. Um, I'm the one that's honoured and uh, I've always had an, an affinity with Afghanistan and um, I do believe it's it's going to be the big issue in my life. Um, mm. I hope to go back there. But yeah, just, just for viewers um, or listeners and viewers, I guess that's the important point. I was an Australian soldier. Mm. I was a lifetime soldier. I've got a legal background. I've got a very what you might call blue chip background. I'm not a, uh, I haven't, uh, I'm not an activist. I'm not a, I'm not a pacifist. Um, I believed, uh, you know, in the Western democracies and what they stood for. I believed that at least in theory, what we were doing in Afghanistan was quite a noble cause. However, I, uh, I'm st and I'm proud to stand up from someone um, from the Western war machine, someone well qualified, someone with the highest possible security clearance, to say uh, what we we're doing was very wrong, mm. and um, we we damaged our reputation, and we owe the Afghan people in particular. And a big apology, and if no one else is going to do it, I'm I'm proud to do it myself. Not that I was particularly uh, culpable myself, but I um someone has to take responsibility. I'm happy to do that. One of the things, well, we'll get ahead of ourselves, but um, I'll throw it back to you. But there's quite a few layers to the story. Mm. Um. And uh, we'll bring them out, but slowly, slowly, yeah. but just to say that I'm a soldier who says we owe the Afghans an apology, and, um, and I'll explain why Thank you. later. Thank you, David. Uh, like I said to you before, the fact that you're here, it would just make me cry, because as you would know, Afghanistan has been under strife for over 40 years. It's just been the football of so many world powers and bouncing about, and you're the, and being called conspiracy theorists and having all these uh, Afghans having allegations of what's really going on, but you stepping forward and saying, actually, no, those allegations are correct. What they're saying on the ground does happen, actually happen. That in itself has, you know, when you, I, I'm going to mention this later on, but when your um, psychologist said, no, you're crazy, you're making these things up. It's like that's what's being said to the Afghans. You're well, well, well researched. That's right. Um, Absolutely. And I'm here to say, and this is a lot of the things that I say are particularly remarkable because, as I said, it did, I did not come from a background, um, the typical, uh, you know, conspiracy theorist background, mm -hmm. born on the wrong side of the tracks or whatever, had a little, uh, who always thought the establishment were wrong. Quite the opposite. You know, I enjoyed, I was a barrister. My father was, um, he was a whistleblower, but he was a wealthy man. I went to expensive schools. Um, I was in a sort of famous regiment. There was, I've only come to these conclusions reluctantly. Um, and, but I have come to the conclusions um, in the bit, same way uh, General Paul Burton came to those conclusions um, through checking and 
checking and double checking the evidence. Mm. And uh, you're right. Um, one of the the essences, and I and I think this will make the Afghans listening breathe a sigh of relief. One of the the absolute pillars of what I was saying is you are right. There is a huge amount of subconscious racism in that we uh, assume that uh, people of brown skin um, are stupid, uh, are liars, um, have no uh, faith. It goes back to the sort of children overboard thing. Mm. Um, very easy. And funnily enough, I never met the uh, – there was a naval officer who uh, – uh, Australian naval officers, there are good people in the forces who uh, uh, corrected the government's story about children overboard and his life was made of misery. Wow. And we have mutual friends, eventually died, um, but uh, died proud of what he'd done. And uh, that is right, that things in relation to international affairs, you'd You'd be embarrassed to know how uh, how simplistic and how sinister some things are, and definitely, um, and we'll get to it as to why I think this. But my major claim is not with the individual soldiers, bad as they were, but it's with the leadership. Mm. You know, as they say, a fish rots from the head down, mm. and the leadership were the ones who um, tacitly approved a dishonest uh, and murderous behaviour. And I feel shamed to be an Australian. I, I grew up um, believing we were a fantastic country. Um, when we went to Afghanistan, the Afghans extended the hand of welcome to us, um, knowing, that, thinking that we would be um, at least very, very good people. We've had all the uh, opportunities that they didn't have, for example, uh, and we let them down, frankly. And uh, if it's my lifetime ambition is to set that straight. Well, I think, you know, uh, David, looking at your background, your father was a gynecologist and you said that in his uh, – I read an article in his 30s – he was confronted with the fact that there was a drug that was going to be in the market that would cause birth defects and it was in his – his jurisdiction to whether to say something or not. And the fact that you mentioned that in an article just shows that being a whistleblower runs and standing up for justice and standing up for the truth and speaking against the grain, you know, really. I love talking to you, Rita. You're so well researched. <laughs> uh, very occasionally, um, and it's like water in the desert for me because you, you have to speak in, in relatively simplistic terms, um, but it's great to have someone as intelligent and as insightful as you. Um, that's right. It's a pretty good story. I can see it myself. I mean, I'm, I've got a book deal at the moment. I'm writing it. It's actually quite hard to put everything uh, in the book deal, but that's right. That was a very interesting thing. Um, my father was only in his 30s. He'd only, uh, so much younger than I was, even in, in Afghanistan. He'd only just qualified as gynecologist, uh, and he saw these babies. Um, often they didn't even live; they were so deformed. And he uh, he got it's quite a funny and quite heroic story. He got it. He thought, "What is happening?" And he got a uh, a map of Sydney. He was he he was in the south in a place called Blakehurst at the time. I just 
been born or about to be born. It's about 1960. And he stuck a map of the uh, Sydney up and he put pins on the map to try to see what, whether there was uh, any geographical link to these mothers. Uh, because he took it very seriously, as I did. He took his responsibility mm. to the mothers, um, mm. you know, his patients. He loved his patients. You know, before he became a researcher, he just, he just loved being a doctor. He was the first person in his family to go to university. Mm. He considered it um, a great honour. He went to medical school age 16. Wow. <laughs> so he was a very committed guy. One of the, he was quite hard to, uh, to live up to his standards. Um, you know, he, he's, he seemed to know everything there was to know when he was about 12. <laughs> and he was, um, uh, he tortured us with times tables and things <laughs> like that. And I was pretty smart as a, as a school kid, but I wasn't, it wasn't smart enough for him. But yeah, he, uh, he said um, he worked it out eventually that they and with the help and it credit where credits due with the help of uh, I think a midwife or a, or a nurse in those days um, like you speak like a lawyer and there are plenty of people you're not a lawyer we don't need any more lawyers probably but um, there are intelligent people all over the world and and there was an intelligent uh, female nurse matron who I think helped him come to that conclusion and said she had the files and said, look, they've all taken the same, right? It wasn't straightforward because uh, some people had taken the drug and not had deformities. So it had to be taken um, at a particular time in pregnancy. And of course it was quite hard because it was a morning sickness tablet. So you couldn't, it wasn't easy to say for sure when they took it, you know, mm-hmm. they just felt sick and they might take it one week and not the next. And But he pieced it together. And it was interesting. I have, uh, I never thought that that would be, you know, my life. But I guess, and I've been reading a little bit about um, Freud and psychology, and they do say that uh, your early experiences uh have a huge effect on what you do later in life. And while I didn't think we had anything that was particularly uh, different, I mean, you always think most everyone's like you, but I guess one of the early experiences I had was he was a very upsetting guy. My mother was a doctor as well. While she didn't work until much later in life, we were just... Well, you would assume, I mean, like most of your listeners, all of your listeners, we were good people, I guess. Mm. We weren't um, particularly religious and we didn't uh, go around thinking we were good people. But but I guess from early age, uh, we just kind of were. And I also had the experience, he was a sort of a famous man uh, from, from as long as I could remember, and so I did have something in the back of my mind that if you do the right thing, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's only now that I've actually looked back on the uh, his story, and it wasn't as easy as it as it, I thought when I was young. That it actually took ten years to get to, to get credit for what he'd done. Wow! And um, it was only with the help of some very good investigative journalists. So again, the media plays a big part. One of the reasons why I'm very happy to be here. For someone like yourself, um, 
media, especially these days independent media, plays a big part. If he hadn't had the support of the Sunday Times uh, insight team, as they were then called, he would never have got any credit for it. It would have been quite, even in those days, even in the 60s, the drug companies were powerful. Mm-hmm. And they um, had the ability to, you know, to bulldoze him. Um, and luckily, a, a German professor uh, who had all the, because Dad couldn't do the sort of necessary experiments. He had a hunch, and a bit, again, a bit like myself. And uh, it was quite funny. He's this thirty-year-old doctor, very overworked, four kids under six at home, and. Um, he was trying to feed thalidomide to rabbits to see whether he could prove it. Wow. And he had to buy rabbits from a pet store, I think. And, of course, they didn't want to eat the thalidomide. But it's kind of funny. Um, you know, that's – even though this became a sort of world-famous discovery, he was doing it with – he had some rabbit hutches and some <laughs> rabbits from the pet store. <laughs> and he was trying to feed them thalidomide, wow. trying to work out what made rabbits, you know, hungry, what they would eat. Because he obviously – he felt he had to try to prove it. Mm. Luckily, a German in a, uh, a guy called Professor Lentz, who was very well respected, he was a professor of pharmacology, I think, and he uh, he had the necessary uh, tools to, um, and he was a big enough person to actually say that Dad was Dad was right, uh, even though it might have been a hunch, and that he uh, and he was first, and so. But it was ten years, and that's that comes back to me because I've had a ten year struggle myself. But I'm so grateful to be here today, um, talking to you. Uh, I mean, without the media, my father would have. Well, God knows what, what he would have crushed him. I think mm. because he would have. He felt a responsibility not just to the uh, those. Uh, mothers, his patients that had, that had um, these terrible deformities and, and their children dying, but also to the other women around the world who potentially were affected. He was lucky that the thalidomide wasn't approved in America. It was one of the early, um, I guess, victories for the um, Food and Drug Administration. And as a result of his uh, work on thalidomide, uh, the equivalent um, uh, drug sort of uh, national approvals in Australia and were made much tighter mm. um, to do more because re- they just didn't do research on it and uh, and now it's a, a lot harder to get a drug onto the market thanks to him. Okay. Incredible, David. Incredible. No wonder you are the man you are. You are your father's son. Well, I kind of am, I and mean, that's part of the, the story of the book. But it's in you know in good ways and bad ways, and it's and it's funny. Because I didn't think that is the case. I laugh about the um, because uh, uh, in my book I'm trying to how am I going to structure it? When you write a book yourself, you probably write one yourself if you haven't already. But you realise you can't put everything in your yeah. life. James Joyce wrote a famous book about um, a single day in a person's life, and it shows you you know to there are so many mm. crazy thought processes that go through our head. Mm. Um, and trying to, you have to, if you're going to write your story, you have to kind of think of some sort of a, a beginning, end, you know, and um, a journey, I guess. And I used to, uh, I looked at sort of the, the classic sort of Hollywood structure, and a guy called Joseph Campbell is very influential mm. in that. Um, and according to that hero structure, uh, uh, 
the the hero. It's always you know it's right into Star Wars and Luke Skywalker, and, and uh, which apparently is based on that structure where they don't want to. Uh, they're reluctant heroes, I guess. Um, that's just something which it always annoyed me. I mean, Luke Skywalker always kind of annoyed me. You know, I grew up, I grew up with the sort of heroic tradition, and I'm like, well, of course you're going to fight, the, of course you're going to fight Darth Vader. I mean, what you know, why would you even hesitate? Who wants to be a farm boy? And uh, uh, so, uh, but maybe that was because I certainly didn't particularly want to follow my father's footsteps in that regard. I liked um, uh, the trappings of success. Um, I liked, you know, uh, maybe that is my story. Maybe, maybe slowly, uh, I did end up following his footsteps without necessarily mm. wanting to. But and but just like most whistleblowers, you, you do, it's not a choice. Mm. You just you are confronted with a situation, and that you know not to follow through with it yeah. would just would be would make everything in your life a lie. And yeah. um, even though I knew what lay ahead was going to be very hard, uh, and other whistleblowers have said the same thing to me, you, the idea that you're not going to do it is just, it's just not possible. As soon as you start weighing things up, you're not going to do it. People used to say to me, people in the Defence Force, and this is one of the, I guess, one of the, uh, the lessons in life, and I'm here to say this to the Afghan you know, listeners particularly, you know, not everybody that looks like us is like us. And, um, and again, this is why I particularly, you know, want to make that clear that, that, uh, to the Afghans that I'm on their side and that the, we are uh, far too much. We, um, we worry about appearances and we, um, yeah, people would say to me, uh, don't start a battle you can't win, which, which, which was, to a certain extent was, was really cowardice and the idea that you wouldn't, You'd weigh things up and think, oh, am I going to, you know, win against the defence force and yeah. therefore I'm not going to do it. You can't think like that. I mean, you have to think what is the right thing to do in this situation. Mm. And again, I, I believe in Afghanistan, a place where honour is uh, still a little bit more part of everyday life, mm. You, um, it's not a matter of whether you're going to win. It's a matter of what's right. Yeah, 100%. So, David, please go ahead. Um, I wanted to know, and we were, so we touched on a little bit about the whole process of what's happened to date, but if you could kindly take us through from the beginning, like you're serving as a soldier in the, in the Australian Armed Forces, or maybe at this time you're, the lawyer, you're a lawyer in the Australian military, when are you becoming aware that crimes are being committed? Like take us back to what you're seeing, how it's all unravelling before you. It's a slow process, or um, as I, I've often said, and it's slightly tongue-in-cheek, but only slightly, it's a bit like being married to a serial killer and uh, someone that you love very much. And um, even though there are questions raised about them, you, uh, you cut them a bit of slack and they come home late and they've got blood on their clothes or, and you're prepared to say, oh, that might have happened, you know, on a farm or something like that. And eventually one day... One th particular thing just cannot be right. And then you suddenly think, hang on, hang on. <laughs> if that's not right, you know, has everything else, um, uh, you know, suddenly you get, you know, you, uh, like in any organization, and this is one of the things I struggle against, uh, I imagine there's a perception with a whistleblower that you're just, 
you're just someone who's 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 strung too tight you know someone who doesn't realize that life is not perfect and of course things um things that you know but that wasn't the case with me i uh, i was prepared to cut uh the australian military uh and the american overall uh, quite a lot of slack uh i started off uh, having doubts when i uh, first joined up about guantanamo bay for mm. example now mm. that struck me as being a cynical um exercise where they americans had chosen this prison um because it wasn't american soil and it also wasn't um Afghan soil, that it meant, uh, and they thought this was quite clever, that no international law applied. And I thought that made me feel uncomfortable. And I was kind of, I know that there was, at law school, when I was actually in the Defence Force, we studied these cases, and you couldn't help but cheer for the lawyers who were running the um, habeas corpus cases and to say that 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 can't be right. I mean, we're we're meant to be going to Afghanistan um, fighting for human rights, fighting for democracy, fighting for all these things. And we can't on the on the other on the exactly the same uh, in the same breath say we're gonna create this prison in, in a sort of legal vacuum and uh and I uh, think we're pretty clever about mm-hmm. it. I mean that made me feel uncomfortable but it didn't make me it didn't make me become a whistleblower. Um we also heard about uh Abu Ghraib, and uh, that was that was very shaming for us. But we were taught that that was a bad thing. But what made me uncomfortable about that was no one above the rank of corporal, which is very very junior, uh, got any blame for that. And we also had an Australian legal officer, excuse me, who was who was actually uh, the legal officer in in, ben, in Abu Ghraib. And he signed off on it and said there was no problem. And when he came back, he got promoted, and he got promoted again. And that made me feel uncomfortable to say it obviously wasn't right. Mm. And there doesn't seem to be any accountability, and we think we're being careful. But again, I wasn't a whistleblower. I was just, I was uncomfortable about what was happening. Actually, it, funnily enough, and this is one of the things that I emphasize, I was a I was a soldier and I believed in the mission and it wasn't actually war crimes per se which which started to make me think it was the opposite in 2013 there had been a lot of rumors of war crimes and the investigations were done and uh, a clean bill of health was pronounced 2013 um, things changed mm. and suddenly we were looking for scapegoats and i was in afghanistan in 2013 for my second tour with special forces and what struck me is that we were suddenly having looked like swept a lot of war crimes the ones Burton was talking about mm. 39 and I, I, the the inside information on that is that it's probably double that i mean that you know Burton did a very thorough investigation and if he said 39 it's probably mm. 60. oh god you know, you know at least thing and uh and these were not as he said this was not someone shooting in the mist and hitting a farmer by mistake who's holding a shovel this was people being taken out the back oh. 
and having their heads blown off and not for any other reason really uh, except but to create terror. It was some sort of harebrained plan to say uh, we can um, we can't beat the Taliban militarily so we uh, they have a lot of fear in the local villages, but we will out-Taliban the Taliban. Mm-hmm. We will just take random people, we'll shoot them, and then people will fear us. Now, needless to say, that didn't win the war. And um, you can imagine, and, and there's a very good article, for those of you who want to look it up, by a guy called Andrew Quilty, who's a great Australian journalist, and he wrote something in the monthly. And... Um, he went and interviewed these people in Oruzgev and uh, at great personal expense because, and the Afghans listening will understand this, they were, most of the people were like, we don't even want to talk, speak to Western journalists. Mm. We don't trust NGOs. Mm. We, uh, we're so sick of what's yeah. going on that we don't trust anybody. And he had to do a lot of work to win them over. Mm. But then, then they would say, and with great fatalism uh yes the australians came yes they shot my brother no he wasn't taliban um it was a disgrace and um i joined the taliban after that and i'm proud i did because you know i i what i saw was disgusting you know and in the early days this is the afghans talking we would complain but the complaints would go nowhere and if anything we'd just get targeted for another raid and people joined the Taliban because of what we did. And uh, who could blame them? You know, who could blame them? So the, the end game was we will out-Taliban the Taliban. That was the I believe purpose. so. I believe so, yeah. It wasn't – there are cert, there are some of them are trying to say now, oh, you know, we killed uh, – we knew this person yeah. was, was Taliban. We didn't want um, him because we had a very – stupid system this is the clash of politics and this is why the generals should be answering because they they tried to impose some sort of european uh cloud in the you know cloud cookie land sort of uh, um legal system where you had to have uh strong evidence before you could hold someone so what would happen is that if they you capture Taliban people, they would be released in, in a couple of days. Now, the generals uh, and the ministers should have complained about that, and they didn't. The Australians didn't. It was an American idea uh, to try to window dress, I guess, mm. to show that like a lot of these things, this is what made me so angry. And, and again, my political background, I could sense the pol- They wanted to be able to say, oh, look, we've installed this fantastic legal system in Afghanistan. Look how, you know, to win credit with the domestic voters in Australia and America. And, but they knew it wasn't working and they knew what was likely to happen was that the soldiers would get frustrated and say, I'm not going to, uh, uh, because it wasn't the place where you could get real evidence, uh, you know, in plastic bags and things like that. And, um, so, uh, and people's names and identity cards is very, very hard. So, uh, it was clear that unless it was fixed, soldiers would take matters in their own hands and just execute people. But the ministers and the generals didn't kick up a fuss because they would rather the soldiers do that um, 
and just hopefully not get caught. And if they get caught, well, they'll throw them to the walls. But rather than take the hard decisions and to say we need to have some interim legal system where if if there's a definite suspicion of you being Taliban, we can hold you in some sort of camp. Uh, I believe, again, it's kind of high-level politics. I believe that came back to bo- the Bosnian experience and you've got people who are involved in PR and they say, oh, we don't want camps um, of uh, potential Taliban prisoners because that will remind people of Bosnia. Now, this is all the sort of sort of sleazy PR sort of stuff which goes on because the fact of the matter is they were going to get people killed. Yeah by not doing the obvious and they didn't do the obvious because they did they cared more about votes mm. uh, and that's what i guess is one of the bottom lines it was more important to win votes of swinging voters in australia and, and america than it was uh, afghan lives meant nothing of course it only be, it only became a problem if, if it was in me in the media mm. and then it was um dealt with and this is why i go back to 2013 the rumours were abounding and now they were trying to make scapegoats and they were trying to put someone in jail for murder and he'd actually just defended himself. And so I thought, this is strange. And I made a complaint about it to say, actually, our parameters for murder are such and such mm. and you need and, and this doesn't fit within those parameters. So it's quite a legal thing. Yeah. A bit like my father, I guess, quite sort of technical. And... Um, and, of course, I just got steamrolled and they were going to arrest me. For, for just bringing it up. Yeah, exactly. For having a legal opinion. And I thought that's strange. I thought that, that would not have happened in, a year ago. Something is happening. And because I'd worked in this, a bit like my father with his hunch, uh, which turned out to be right, um, I knew in September 2013 that I would be going to war with my own country my own leadership and uh, I knew it wasn't going to happen overnight but when they threatened to arrest me I thought you are running this war on a dishonest uh, advertising they call it public affairs but it's really advertising uh, way the Afghan people mean nothing Uh, you are covering up crimes because famous people have done them and the only you're not because you particularly like the famous soldiers, but because you think if the famous soldiers go down, uh, politicians might go down with them. You're trying to put non-entities in jail uh, because no one cares about them, and that will keep the press off your back. And you have lost all sense of uh, ethics, morals, and the law. And um, I'm going to bring it out, even if takes my life and I saw it as a military mission even though I was sort of fighting my own people but a bit like um you know the sort of people I'm inspired by the the uh the the German in the second world war just decided to kill Hitler even though they're in the German army you know when you realize that your your organization are the bad guys Mm. and even though you're part of it you have to do something about it and uh so I came back to Australia and I started to agitate. I guess I still had some sort of um, hope that they would see reason. And if I, when I said, hang on, it looks like you are covering up war crimes 
you are making scapegoats. Uh, you are saying every, the war is going well when it's not. Mm. Um, all for politics. Uh, and I try. I, mean, I was. I was in the organisation. You would understand a bit like um, your uh, your listeners in, in the business world. If you think something in a major corporation, you obviously can't. Mm. You've got to be careful not to be. And this is probably to your female listeners as well. You don't want to be called hysterical or whatever. Mm. So you have to uh, make a complaint in a very uh, clever, diplomatic, diplomatic yeah. way. Yeah. And I was hoping. I was still had some sort of hope that they would say. Because there were good people that they would say, yeah, we get where you're coming from. Mm. It was a war. Uh, it got a bit carried away, um, with, you know, and we can see that maybe we we went a bit too far with some of the messaging and uh, and the breaking the law, et cetera, and we need to get back. I, I guess something, something inside of me hoped that I might get a pat on the back. Uh, and it, 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 when you're fighting a really despicable uh, organisation, I guess that doesn't happen. But in some ways, it made it easier for me because I then became the target. As I said, mm. as you pointed out, I was psychologically re- reviewed a couple of times and mm. I was particularly annoyed because they would say to me, I had to do this because I had a big work ethic. I was based at Bungandor at the Special Forces Headquarters. Uh, we still had a responsibility for anti-terrorism operations and so i uh and i took that i love that job this is another reason about whistleblowers love the job i didn't want to give it up and i certainly uh didn't not do my day job i mean i was there really brushing up on anti-terrorist legislation but i wanted to make this complaint good so i spent about six months writing it and they were kind of angry at me for writing it to say oh you know what are you doing You're wasting your time and and it just it just showed me I was on the right path because I was like, what could be more important mm. than the idea, than the Australian military, that it's meant to be based on honour and truth and justice, is actually a sham. Um, and I think it's something which is pretty important. It is actually my core job as a lawyer, as a sort of middle-ranking lawyer, to at least ask the question. So how could that how could that be a sort of a ridiculous uh, mm. task? But they would definitely try to gaslight me to say, you know, you're, you're, you're nuts. It, it, why would you care about such things? And it, it, they said it so often that it, you start to believe it yourself. And uh, luckily I had a very supportive wife who, who could, see, um, uh, that, could see that so much about the defence force was a lie. Yeah. And she saw it from a different angle. In the sense that they 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 had a lot of glossy brochures which uh, said, "Oh, we're so family friendly and we look after families, etc." And yet, uh, even before I started making you know, complaints, she was like, "Well, they never look after me. They don't call me. I've had to, uh, you know, be a sort of effective widow, short term widow for two tours of Afghanistan. And while I'm proud of you, no one's ever come to see whether mm. I'm all right." Uh, and that it stuck in her throat that they that they proclaimed in sort of loud glossy brochures how family friendly they are, but then they weren't in reality. Mm. And particularly when they started to gaslight me, they had a sort of a, a big push for sort of women women in the defence force and and how great women were, etc. But and again that stuck in her throat because she was like, 
the Defence Force are trying to kill you, and they probably were effectively. I'm a woman, and your daughters are women, uh, and they don't seem to care about them. Yeah. And and yet they, you know, there's glossy ads on TV about how great women were, but it, it, it just was like they are just full of it. Mm. And um, uh, it's the clash, I guess, of politics and soldiering. And when anything, um, you know, it just becomes a great big marketing exercise, and uh, nothing uh, to do with the truth at all. And I am. Um, I'd already seen examples of it, but it, it just began to make my blood boil. And uh, I was psychologically reviewed about three times. Um, because you were bringing these things because up? Because I was making a complaint. Okay. And it took me a long time to write it. I needed it to be very, you know, considered to mm. say, hang on, you know, we've had this allegation against the famous guy in 2012, you know, that he killed as one, one as early as 2006. Nothing happened. Mm. Now in 2013, we've got a soldier who actually did his job and you want to put him in jail for mm. life. W- what's changed? Something may have changed. And, of course, the law hadn't changed. And what I was trying to get at was for them to say, yeah, mm. we're getting a bit carried away with politics. But uh, they didn't. And just the fact that I was asking the questions made me uh, an enemy which again was an indication that the organisation was sick uh, because you would have thought that they would be happy, they would be happy mm. to say, okay, it's important to you. And of course, if it's true, that would be a very big deal so that we need to make sure that, um, you know, that it's not true and by all means we're going to give you all the help that we can. But they didn't, and which is a strange sort of – there's so much psychology involved in whistleblowing that the organisation, you would think any organisation, any decent organisation, if there is some sort of allegation like that, they would open an inquiry mm. with welcome arms and okay. they'd say, well, let's look into it. But, of course, they didn't. They, just, they didn't, even though it may have been proved fruitless, they didn't even want, a bit like my case in the Public Interest Disclosure Act, they didn't even want... Um, it to even be looked at from the beginning, which which was again strange, but again made me think I must be on the right track, that they aren't even going to consider mm. uh, what I say. They're going to make my. I had a very good career up to that point, and again, this is your female listeners will know all about this, uh, and probably get some hair standing up on the back of the neck. Uh, suddenly your good career is no longer a good career. You know, you, and I, you don't get to be the special forces lawyer. And, uh, so you're demoted lawyer. at this point? <laughs> Effectively okay. demoted, yeah. They couldn't actually – had I been convicted, they tried – as I said, they tried to arrest me in Afghanistan and I just laughed. For, for what? For having a legal opinion that oh, they didn't like. But that's – Of course. It's not even a charge, but that's how mad it was. I was like – I was like, we'll do it. You can't actually, you know, you, you'll be laughed out of court because I had a legal opinion that you didn't like. But it was a threat. And then, um, uh, so they couldn't demote me, but they, they did things which were effectively made to torment me. They promoted someone over the top of me who had actually been convicted of a dishonesty offence, which, oh. is, which is kind of, as a lawyer, you know, that's that's usually you get struck off, but they didn't. They kind of t- to rub it in because I was the next person who should have been promoted. They promoted someone over the top of me who actually had you know been convicted of dishonesty, and as if to say you know you are this is how bad you are. 
And uh, it's it's nice to me to be here today talking to you because this, in some ways, this is a dream come true because I've forgotten. A lot of these repressed memories get, uh, you know, they get crushed down a bit. But it was a very dark time because mm. I just, I had at that stage, I had nobody. And to be here in a nice office talking to an intelligent uh, Afghan uh, lady like yourself is a dream come true because, it, you know, you don't, no matter, and I often, I often wonder how many, uh, how many whistleblowers don't make it. I mean, it's certainly how many, you know, how many people that knew the truth in Afghanistan, uh, you know, might have had a complaint and just ended up getting shot. You know, and uh, this is why the people didn't even want to come to speak to Andrew Quilty because a lot of uh, they thought it wasn't even it wasn't even possible to complain and you could just get yourself shot. I mean, they a lot of a lot of people who were shot as Taliban, especially by the Australians, were just um, named uh, by some someone with an enemy, someone with a grudge, give them the name, and the next thing you know, the guy whose farm you wanted would be get shot, you know. And uh, I'd seen this before in Rwanda. This, this is one of the one of the, the the strengths I had, and it was seen as a bit of a weakness by the defence force, but it was a strength was that I'd been around. I'd been to Afghanistan in 2000. Uh, and I crossed the Khyber Pass making a travel documentary when I was between uh, armies. And I knew then um, my life would, would be defined by Afghanistan. I was very proud. I'd read about the stories uh, of the Northwest Frontier, as they called it in those days, I, and I was fascinated by it. And uh, when I got there, I... I I could see the magic. I could see the people, um, the sort of things that most Australians didn't see. In mm-hmm. They would just see poverty and um, uh, faith systems they didn't understand and they didn't realise that um, if you stripped away that uh, westernised uh, lens and actually looked for the, the heart uh, and looked for the... Uh, uh, the honour you, you saw so much. We we were welcomed into homes by villagers who had nothing and would give us give us uh, the best food they had, mm. the best the best place to sleep. Um, I saw that, I, mm. and I thought, wow, we have lost so much in the West, and I loved that. Mm. I um, and there was a there was a, it was made quite um, it was made into a movie, but the, but I don't, and it was pretty good, but the. We, one of the key themes was lost, and it was the movie I think was called uh, Lone Survivor or something, and it was about an American soldier who uh, gets caught in Afghanistan, and only he, the rest of his team get killed. But he, um, and this has had a real ring of truth about it. He gets taken in, uh, wounded by an Afghan family uh, who repair his wounds, and they are. Uh, they decide what they're going to do with him. While they're not really sure, they know he's an American soldier, and they know he's killed a lot of their countrymen. They decide he's their guest, um, and once that decide he's their guest, um, the neighbouring village, who are Taliban, come to get him, and they fight the neighbouring village. Now that uh, that's a true story, and that um, that uh, uh, is something which should have been greater emphasised. It may be hard for us to understand, but that is a beautiful. Um, um, you know, that says a lot about what people consider as honour and guess and strength and um, 
And we have lost that. We have totally lost that in the West. And we, we think nothing. The whole Afghan war was like, it was painted as a sort of clash of civilizations with us being good and them being bad. But in reality, it could have been the other way around and that we were so duplicitous. Uh, we, we, we didn't think anything uh, about lying and uh, making agreements we were never going to keep. And the people on the other side uh, were actually uh, meant what they said and said what they meant. And um, no wonder uh, we were eventually pushed out because we didn't have that sort of um, connection uh, to truth. And I think that that's very important in any war. You need to have the moral high ground. Mm. And mm. while we tried to pretend we had it, uh, and it wouldn't, it, that's not necessarily wrong to go to Afghanistan and um, push the Taliban out. Um, but we weren't there to do that. You know, we were there for all sorts of mm. geopolitical reasons. Uh, that was what we said, you know, even lately. Well, even though we, we were never there for uh, the Afghan women and girls, that's something that's thrown around by George Bush. And, and that was never true. Uh, it might have been fine if it was true, but it was just like, it's like you're trying to sell a product and you'll say anything to mm. get that sale. But... Um, uh, as I said, I'm not a pacifist. I grew up on the stories of the Second World War. I think it was right for the uh, forces, uh, Allied forces, to go into Europe and to clean out um, Adolf Hitler. Mm -hmm. uh, but they had the moral high ground. You know, he was slaughtering Jews in camps and uh, mm -hmm. many other sorts of people as well. Uh, in Afghanistan, we didn't have it. Um, and I think, funnily enough, as I said, that, that um, small, often war is not, it's not really that hard to understand. I mean, it's, it's different. It's the opposite in the civilian world in, in that your boss can send you to your death and you can't complain. But it's not beyond, um, once you get those concepts, it's not beyond understanding. And I think having met some Taliban in 2000 when they showed us around, I knew that there were good ones and there were bad ones and there were dumb ones but they you know they were not they were not beyond the, the pale of yeah. any australian yes, soldiers what you, you experienced say, what you expect yeah, yeah exactly and they were a product of the context of the previous 20 years which to the west must bear responsibility yeah. for yeah and um but interestingly enough I, I, the reason that and the cia got carried away with their own importance but the reason that the taliban dissipated so quickly in 2002 was that they felt guilty. They knew that they had allowed Osama bin Laden safe passage and they and that they saw the terrible pictures of 9-11 and I believe that they, they knew they did not have the moral high ground and they didn't really try to fight too hard in 2002. They knew the writing was on the wall and they fled and there was a certain amount of collective guilt. Uh, now, that changed over uh, the course of the next six years after the invasion of Iraq, which mm -hmm. people could see was um, totally, you know, mm -hmm. a made-up American thing. And uh, they began to gain uh, the moral high ground again. And things kind of shifted. But, yeah, actually, despite the sort of PR, but actually being right makes a difference. And this is one of the things that, that occasionally, again, it's good to be here when I've just gone bit down thinking about those last you know 10 years but when you think you're right you will always have a, a, an inner strength which can allow you to, to take on anything wow 
You're amazing, David. You really are. The fact that it's it's already been ten years. It has been ten years. It's I know. That you're doing. I was this. about to say five, and you're, I realised it was. It's ten. It's yeah, ten. It's ten years, and so. You, you've noticed these war crimes. You've gone out to speak to someone. No one's doing anything about it. They're actually taking it out on you, trying to arrest you. Then you then take this information and you take it to the ABC. Can I ask you, because in me research, why you took it to the ABC? Now, the ABC are funded by the Australian government. Their hands are tied as to how much they can really rally for you, publish the stories, speak about you, talk to the truth of what you have risked your life to make known. When you look back, do you think you should have gone to a different outlet that didn't have the restrictions of the, what the ABC have? You're a very smart interviewer. Um, I love talking to you. And uh, we might have to do a very long pod. You could be uh, ask the questions for my life story because it's actually easier answering the, the questions. And um, uh, you're right. And uh, if we have to make a movie, we'll have to gloss over that fact. But obviously for the intelligent viewers... That was a big problem. It, uh, I guess one of the uh, the things that will make, well, it won't surprise the Afghans. Uh, it probably won't even surprise the, sort of the female business women listening. Um, uh, things are not always what they seem. Uh, and it was pretty, you would think this is a big story. And again, like the Defence Force, you would think even if people would say, oh, well, uh, if it's true, that's a big story, but I don't necessarily, you know, I don't believe you. I need to do some more mm. research. Mm. You reckon journalists would be banging at my door? Mm. No. It was a very hard story to sell. What? Uh, and um, I couldn't get anyone interested. Uh, the first person I saw was actually a guy called Chris Masters, who's, I didn't even realize, it was a bit of a, a lucky, um, I knew that he'd been in Afghanistan. Uh, I'd been living in the UK uh, for the 90s when I think when he did his Moonlight State and brought down the uh, Joe Bjorki Peterson government. And I didn't know, I'd, I didn't realise he was sort of a household name and I knew he'd done a positive um, story um, about the Australian soldiers in Afghanistan. Mm. So I spoke to him. And I, because I, my first angle was to say, we're making scapegoats. Because mm. I thought, I thought he was someone who supported, and I thought if I went to some any kind of journalist, any normal civilian journalist, they would say, "Oh well, you join the army. What do you expect? Mm. Get chucked in jail. That's that's tough, you know." I needed someone that understood that it was an honourable profession, and these people, if they might not have much education, but they don't deserve to be uh, railroaded, mm. for, you know, for, for things they didn't do. And people, you know, that, that that's not to say that the People who did do things should go to jail, absolutely. But I thought he would have the sort of subtlety to see it was a big political game and we were making people famous who didn't deserve to be famous uh, and we were we were scapegoating people who didn't deserve to be scapegoated. Um, and he was the first person I gave the document. This is one of the problems with my public interest disclosure defence and again, it's uh, we'll talk about that later. Um, it was uh, uh, quite early on, 2014, I saw Masters, and um, I put my complaint in because as a lawyer I knew uh, that I was, guess I was, while I was hoping that I would get a pat on the back, I was also wanted a belt and braces, and I thought, like my dad and like Watergate, mm. I'm going to need uh, a heavy-hitting journalist 
to uh, mm. ask this because the Public Interest Disclosure Act is written um, to so uh, people a bit like myself, I guess, but mainly can, they can avoid jail. Now, because I saw this as my mission to, to set the world right, uh, I wasn't actually trying to avoid jail per se. I didn't want to go to jail immediately because then I wouldn't achieve the mission, but I was actually trying to get change. So I didn't bother following... Um, I followed the broad brush idea that I put the complaint in first. Uh, I, as it was a big complaint about basically about the Chief of the Defence Force, um, I knew it, it was unlikely to be upheld because the Chief of the Defence Force mm. runs the complaint. Oh, hello. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, uh, but I put it in. And uh, as I said, I got a lot of flack for even doing it, so I didn't hold out much uh, chance of it being upheld. But I saw Masters... Uh, because I needed someone. I knew that I wouldn't be able to get up on my own. I needed someone to, uh, I imagine, like Watergate, uh, those listeners who are old enough to know about that, in that the uh, the leaker in Watergate was, uh, I think, the deputy director of the FBI, uh, and he uh, linked to Bernstein and Woodward, and they were able to run stories and uh, ask hard questions. And then, of course, the government denied it, the US government, and then when the denials came, their source, my equivalent, was able to prove that the denials were lies. And that's what I was hoping. I was hoping a journalist, I imagined in my mind's eye there was mm. going to be big press conferences mm. like you see in the movies and they would <laughs> say, you know, did you know this person was a war criminal? Uh, did you have any complaints? Yeah. And then they'd be on the spot and say, no, we didn't. And they'd say, what about this? Uh, that, of course, never happens yeah. anymore. We've learned a lot of bad lessons from the... Uh, I used to always think, um, growing up, quite idealistic that the world evolves positively. You know, even even things like um, the First and Second World Wars, uh, we've got a lot of um, a lot of things improved in the world uh, after mm-hmm. those after those wars. And I was always trying to think, well, things we're basically moving in the right direction. Uh, but I'm not so sure anymore in that um, after Vietnam, for example, and after Watergate, uh, governments have really worked out uh, not so much, you know, not to go to war uh, uh, on spurious grounds in um, South Asia, but more how to stop uh, the press um, making a, a big deal out of something which can actually bring the government down. So now that the press are far more controlled, they're controlled in really simple ways by uh, tax um, concessions. Uh, they give them tax, the government gives them tax concessions and therefore uh, they make money and therefore they don't really write huge anti-government story. And I don't think we'll ever have another Watergate, not unless people like yourself uh, become bigger independent as i said independent journalism will save the world and uh particularly the sort of younger generation but it's um uh yeah there was no there was not really any takers for a story which was going to rock the boat uh with the government and um i can't talk too much about chris masters he uh Anyway, it is in my statement to the police in the sense that I told the police from the beginning because I, uh, when I went and saw the police, I did something I'm quite proud of, but again, it's one of those things was instinctive um, uh, and uh, my lawyers didn't want me to do it, but sometimes you've got to do what you think is right. But I actually went to the police uh, 
And I said, yes, I gave the documents to the following people. Yeah. I did it because I was justified and, um, you know, most lawyers are saying, oh, whatever you did. But I didn't want them to have to, uh, and I've learned this mistake from my, one of the things that my father uh, made a mistake when he got caught out later in his career about changing the number of rabbits in an experiment. Uh, he didn't just admit it, you know, and even though the drug turned out to actually be a, uh, dangerous and, and causing deformities, and, he, and, and he, he should have just said, yes, there was only six rabbits, not eight rabbits, and uh, however, I believe the drug is dangerous. But by denying, you know, the number of rabbits, mm. it changed the focus okay. from whether or not the drug was deformity. So I was going to, I didn't want them to let them, them kill me by a death of a thousand cuts and uh, prove that I did give the documents to the ABC. Um, and then then have to say after that, oh, but I was justified. You yeah. know, I wanted to say, yes, I did mm. it, to take that off the table. Mm. And I was hoping um, that any judge, being a lawyer, I know that the judges, um, they give credit to people who are honest and they understand that things are not perfect. And they, um, I was, before, when I thought I'd get a fair trial, I was pretty confident because um, the lawyers were like, oh, we need to get your admissions uh, struck out for being, you know, uh, you gave them under mental illness or something. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, uh, what I said was true. Uh, I, um, I'm proud of it. And I'm hopefully the judge will say, look, he's always been um, uh, an honest person. You know, he, t he told the police and the police were quite grateful too. In fact, ironically enough, I became quite friendly with them because uh, I said, look, I'm not going to waste your time. You're out there trying to catch murderers and you're trying to... Uh, picking out dead children from sort of car crashes and you have a pretty tough life. And I actually uh, believe in the rule of law. That's why I'm here. And uh, I'm not going to, you know, oppose myself to the police. I want to tell you the truth. I want you yeah. to know that I'm telling you the truth. And that was good. Every time I used to see these guys in, in court, we'd have a bit of a laugh because they knew that I didn't hold back anything from them. Um, and... Uh, I understood that they were just doing their job. And uh, as I said, if, if I've committed a crime, I'll go to jail. I don't think I have. I actually think I'm trying to uphold the law. And I think it's the government and the generals and, and various other soldiers that have committed the crime. Um, so uh, I've always tried to be honest about it. And the Public Interest Disclosure Act, just one of the things that I've... <laughs> a problem that I have, it's... Uh, I believe under the common law, what we call the common law, which was sort of like judge-made law, which is much more sort of common sense, uh, I probably would have had a better run in that, that if I was tried under the Official Secrets Act and in front of a judge, and the judge would say, well, why did you do it effectively? And I'd say, well, I believe that the government was breaking the law. This was important. And the, and the judge would say to the prosecutor, well, did uh, Australia suffer any real damage uh, from national security? And um, it would be clear that they didn't. Mm. I mean, this is one of the things that annoys me when I'm called a traitor. The only people I saw were, while it was hard for me to get uh, any interest, but the people I saw, Chris Masters and eventually the ABC, were very trusted journalists. They, wasn't, they didn't go and see the Chinese embassy mm. or the... Russians, I saw people yeah. who were, you know, who had a career of yeah. investigative journalism. Yeah. Um, 
and I knew that they would deal uh, appropriately with the documents. And um, I, uh, so yes, it was, but it was hard. Chris Masters didn't want, for whatever reason, I, I, he said one thing I will say, and, and, and I'll leave it sort of ambiguous. He said to me, uh, after he didn't do it, he said, I like to finish what I've started. And that was about one of the last conversations we've had. And I believed he was already working on the Robert Smith okay. um, thing. And uh, I I give him credit for that. Uh, he's quite an old school sort of guy. I have a lot of time for him. Um, and uh, I think that's what he was trying to say, to say I'm, I'm already working on something. He may or may not have used my documents to prove because mm. some Ben Robert Smith was mentioned in uh, some of the documents in in coded references. One of the inquiries um, whitewashed mm. one of the incidents uh, okay. and said it was all right. And maybe uh, Chris Masters had a look at it and said this proves my case. Mm. Um, I think he was already working on it. Then he had been embedded with the special forces. He would have heard the rumours. In fact, one of the things that really annoyed me, I didn't even know this at the time, but uh, Masters knew that back in 2006, so very early on in the war, uh, Ben Robert Smith had shot a, um, a shepherd boy. And uh, this is the thing that would make Afghan's blood boil. And again, someone... I've someone who's like myself as a lifetime soldier who'd been to Afghanistan. I can read between the lines of the mm -hmm. reports. Now, uh, it's a particularly bad story. This one I've, I've put it on my YouTube, but it's um, uh, the SAS were fighting the Taliban in uh, in a valley, uh, Chora Valley. Now, but Ben Robert Smith's patrol were on top of the mountain and they were meant to just be overwatched and that means that they were meant to not give up their position. Uh, they're like a sniper on top of the building. And uh, and this is one of the, again, I emphasise this because it's often painted as if, oh, like the bleeding heart media against the heroic uh, SAS. But actually this was, the witnesses in this case were other SAS soldiers, very brave, just as brave, just as strong, um, just as much uh, a part of the Australian fabric. And they saw a boy, as I said, they were an overwatch, and he was a boy. Mm. Uh, as we know, in Afghanistan, they're small in, in the valleys, and, and uh, if they thought he was a boy, you know, he was, he was like 14 or something, 12 mm -hmm. maybe. So a little guy. Uh, walking along no weapon no uh some sort of bag on his back but the sas people uh said he hasn't seen us we're on a very high mountain um he's obviously you know herding goats or something and let him by ben robert smith comes back he's not there he's not on duty at the time and he's and there's he sees that they've been, they've, they've reported this boy and he says, oh, he's, he's Taliban. And um, they go, well, no, there's no reason to think that. So Ben Robert Smith goes off, and this is all documented, uh, with someone on. They shoot the guy, shoot the kid. And they're, they're meant to actually be, uh, you know, they're not even meant to be revealing themselves. The gunshots echo around. And, uh, yeah, it makes me quite emotional when I think about it as well. Um, and then, not surprisingly, 
people come from the local village uh, to watch the gunfire. And this is one of the disgusting things. Of course, it's all yeah, – and the Afghan viewers will get this because uh, in this sort of very racist black and white world, it's mm-hmm. considered that people coming from the village to mm-hmm. find out whether a, a Taliban. Mm. They could have easily been the family wondering where <sighs> the boy was. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so what happens? SAS patrol now think they're under they oh, they fight so more. Kidding me. And of course, under the rules of engagement, the fact that someone's even got a weapon doesn't actually make them Taliban. And anyway, it turns into a big uh, firefight. Taliban probably do come, but only because Ben Robert Smith's given them away by firing and killing someone that didn't need to be killed. Um, and it was it was painted as a very heroic action, but um, put it this way, there's, there's six very heavily armed Australians on top of a mountain and uh, with American air support, that is like uh, jets, uh, dropping bombs, so it doesn't sound that heroic to me. Uh, anyway, they fight off the people trying to climb the hill. Um, and uh, these things happen, but the worst thing was, and Ben Robert Smith, even by the patrol commander's uh, report, wasn't the hero, but Ben Robert Smith gets a medal for gallantry. What? Yeah, I know, as a result. And, um, uh, and not only that, is he's the first person, first SAS soldier that I know of, who's able to, who is actually allowed to give a sort of press conference in the middle. And I believed at the time, I believe now, having read between the lines, that they, the Liberal government at the time, they saw him as a fantastic, very mm-hmm. handsome guy, advertisement for the war. Uh, he uh, should not have got a medal. And of course they created a monster because... If you give someone a medal. Uh, like a child, for reinforcing shooting. bad behaviour. Exactly. So what's going to happen? And also what, what message did it send to the, because the other SAS people who were like, you shouldn't have shot that guy. Mm. He was like to them, I'm going to kill you. You better watch out. And so what's, you know, we, mm. you, exactly. You, re, you, you reinforce bad behaviour. And this was 2006. So what do you think was going to, and he couldn't say, oh, I've done so many missions, you know, I'm a bit worn out. And uh, it was, his, as far as I know, it was his very first time in Afghanistan. So there was no excuse about, oh, you know, I've got PTSD or something. Uh, now, I don't blame him so much. He didn't award himself the medal. I blame the PR people and I blame uh, the generals. Uh, and I blame, the, I think I blame the Howard government because at that time, we hadn't committed full-time to sending uh, forces to Afghanistan. After that, after the positive press and look at this heroic thing, we, we, we committed to the war. Oh, and I believe that they okay. were selling the war mm. with these heroic stories. And so they made a double whammy. They made a sort of a monster uh, and they also popularised the war. Uh, and that's why Brendan Nelson um, liked it so much because they committed troops uh, after that and it, it made the war was popular uh, mm-hmm. and they pushed these heroic stories to make it um to to sell it to those swinging voters because a lot of the time uh, wars can go either way saw that in vietnam uh, bad press and so that early press 
was very much, you know, focused on heroism. And unfortunately, the the tin tax, and Chris Masters drew this out, of that particular, there's no doubt they shot an unarmed kid. uh, and um, A shepherd boy. A shepherd boy. And... It was, you know, against the mission anyway, because they were meant to be they were meant to be undiscovered and they were meant to be protecting oh other people. God. And uh and the people that complained, they one of them, uh, he had his he reckoned Robert Smith almost killed him, you know. He had his he's still in the SAS. He's a hero. He's an absolute hero in my book. Uh, that SAS soldier that said you shouldn't have done that. Mm. And as a result was told you're going to get a bullet in the head. Blah, blah, blah. And all this came out in the defamation action. So it's not even like I'm revealing anything which is not in the public mm. space. Mm. It's not well known, mm. but um, it's not well understood. But someone like me can read it, mm. read between the lines and to say, and that Masters must have known that. Uh, he writes about it in a book. He doesn't, he, he wrote a first book before the war crime stories, before the Ben Robert Smith story. And he hints, he mentions that story and he tries to play diplomatically and say maybe, you know, maybe I was wrong. But um, And Robert Smith, when he had to explain to some sort of like hero-worshipping biographer in 2009, changed the story. When, and apparently there were two boys and they were armed. Oh. And someone said, well, what do you mean? Two people armed with weapons? Uh, the report says one person with no weapon, and then he said, "Oh, you know, uh, I must have got confused, or um, I, you know, I did so many actions, but that didn't make sense because uh, you would remember the f- it, when you won a medal of gallantry, which is like only second only to the Victoria Cross, you'd remember, <laughs> and you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't get, it. and it was your like your first major mission in Afghanistan, you wouldn't be get confused." Uh, and so, yeah, he tried to say there were two boys and they were armed. And then there was one person and he wasn't armed. He was a kid. And this is, we read, this is why my target is the leadership. They need to bear responsibility for that. That's, again, your corporate listeners will get that. And unfortunately, I think they're going to slither away into the grass. But the corporate people will know that's not a problem of the soldier. Yeah. That's a problem of the organisation. Yeah. Because you, you made mention quite a few times that, not, not here but in previously, that this war in Afghanistan, and I hate this word, but you called it an Instagram war. I just found like that's… It didn't take off because I think Instagram and Facebook are so powerful. You, you, you probably could take on the CIA before then, but, but that's… Um, uh, I don't want to… Uh, Offend Mark Zuckerberg, but I mean that's <laughs> that uh, that's unfortunately what it was. An and, Instagram and, and if you understand what if you get what they mean by that, but you know you've yes, got these yes, in, yes, influencers yeah, yeah. Mm, mm, who mm. are actually you know poverty stricken junkies, but yeah. they're um. But you're selling it through these pictures. Uh, yeah, but the pictures make filtered. them look like they've had some beautiful life, yeah. and uh, you know you can tell pretty much you know it's almost the opposite depending on how someone's beautiful life looks on Instagram, and and the photos are there to get likes. Yeah, and that's what the war was like. Like we will build a school. Yeah, and there'd be a big opening, and mm. someone would cut the rim. Mm. Um, now it didn't matter whether anyone actually went to the school. It didn't matter whether they really needed a school. Um, it was all about getting the photo and uh, all of these things that we would have built would have been abandoned because it was all window dressing. And we built a highway they didn't need, they didn't want. Um, we'd have a big opening, a photo of the highway and get likes. But there was no, um, 
had there been someone like yourself, you wouldn't have to be an absolute geopolitical expert, mm. but either uh, we could have, I could have, I'd met the Taliban, I, you know, not that, they, not that they ever, the Americans ever didn't want a war because it was good for votes, but um, had they wanted to avoid a war, it could have been done. Uh, you wouldn't have had to be any expert. Um, you and I could have gone there and sorted it out. Um, we really could have. But they didn't want that. I mean, it wasn't that hard. And we didn't care about what the Afghans actually want. We didn't certainly no. didn't get any experts in the area to say what will actually help. Okay. We did a lot of things like, um, you know, they had a, this is another typical story. They had a prison, um, an Afghan prison, you know, where it was like a, what we call a koala. It was adobe building it was a house and they used to keep the uh, the taliban prisoners there and um they had shackles on and they'd sit outside and they'd, they'd drink tea uh but it worked hmm. we looked it up with our game with our western lenses and said oh this is terrible you hmm. know the walls are gonna they didn't escape uh they sat there they weren't mistreated they were okay. again it was a western lens yeah. problem yeah. not wanting to see that not wanting to believe that anything just not like the West is, is again, real racism. That, that again, yeah. a bit like the stolen generation or whatever. We couldn't believe that if, if things look different to our white picket fence, mm. that they must be wrong. Yeah. So we we've said, oh, we're going to build them a new prison. So we built, and Australians, again, are really guilty of this. And we try to blame the Americans, but this is the Australians did this, and the Dutch. Um, We've spent millions and millions, um, which could have been spent elsewhere, building them a sort of Australian-style prison. Big concrete structure and um, wires and, and whatever. And we moved all the prisoners into this big thing. And then um, uh, it had to be uh, powered by air conditioning because it would um, uh, they'd die of heat exhaustion because it was you know, not well ventilated, super, super max kind of thing. And of course, they find out that they don't. Uh, the Afghans don't have diesel to run the uh, oh, air conditioning. God. And this is this is this is not like this is run by the highest people in Australia, yeah. you know. And now we have made a death trap. Uh, the Afghans, who were, you know, I met the one of my jobs as a legal officer was to go there quite a bit, so I knew the head of the prison. He was an honourable kind of guy. And he said, I don't have diesel, and you need to go to supply me with diesel, otherwise this they're going to die. Gonna die. And we were like, oh, well, you've got to, you know, you got to get diesel. Nobody thought of oh. that through. Um, so uh, <laughs> I doubt it's still standing, and it'd be knocked down. And they th we thought we were so superior, and we built them Western toilets all the time, and um, uh, and no one's stop to say oh well that's not what they mm. use that's not what they understand and so these things became hazards it was a real western cultural imperialism mm. where we tried to and it's almost again you know your listeners will like me for saying this but it was it sickened me because we tried to make it into a little uh, a little america or whatever and we, and we succeeded in that sort of everything was about bribery everything was about appearances uh, and the things that actually worked, um, we we got rid of. We didn't actually, if it was different to us. And it's not as, uh, you know, the, the GDP of Afghanistan was, I think, the lowest or second lowest in the world. And you can actually have a country, again, because I'd been around, I'd been to uh, Af um, Ethiopia, which I think is down there as well. 
and I saw that you can actually have a workable country and you've got to make it sustainable. And so they don't have uh, the money in Ethiopia to sort of have uh, being prisons. And so they you know, have a lot of candle power. They, they, you know, they, they use, um, they don't have tractors, but they use uh, uh, cattle to uh, mm. plow the field. You've got to, and you can actually work within what you've got. And with all the brains... The people behind, uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram, they could have come up with sustainable uh, Afghan mm. solutions. Mm. But of course, as I said, it was, I hesitate to say it, Instagram, um, where appearances, were, and the reason why appearances were everything, because it was all uh, about domestic political elections. George W. Bush got re-elected for dropping bombs, you know, even Obama, uh, the Australians, and, uh, and this is... This was really the the bigger problem than the war crimes. We would say anything uh, for uh, short-term likes and make it someone else's problem. Uh, everybody knew uh, the regime that we'd built up was going to collapse, everybody in the military. And yet, no one, everyone was like, oh, well, don't worry, it'll be someone else's problem. Yeah. Yeah. And that was just, I mean, I, they thought that was funny. I thought that was disgusting. I, I just have to say, David, because you said, well, these things were happening because of the re- re-election of George W. Bush, then what's Australia getting out of it? I mean, what does it mean to Australia if George W. Bush gets re-elected? Like, why are we still in the war? Oh, well, that's a good question. Again, my stomach turns too much to say. We're totally beholden to the Americans. Um, we, uh, we joined the war on the same day they did, and we left the war on the same day. They did, and they try, we try and say that that's a coincidence. I mean, we are controlled by them. Um, but, you know, war, unfortunately, in, in probably all uh, the Western world, but certainly the English-speaking world, uh, you have a red team and you have a blue team. Mm-hmm. And most people, well, a lot of people vote either red or blue mm-hmm. every time. Mm-hmm. And so... The terrible thing about uh, democracy, and this is the older I've got, I can see that there are actually big problems with democracy. I used to think it was the answer to everything. But uh, the only people that really matter to politicians are the people who, the purple people, who, who vote one way one year and one year the next year because mm-hmm. they are the ones that decide the election. So they get everything. And again, they're often very racist. This is one of the things that shocked me about them. Um, uh, the refugees, and again, the Afghans will um, uh, listeners will. I, again, I apologise for my country, boy, but we will let uh, you know Hazara people who, who who would make great Australians who, who kind of been bullied by the Taliban, but we will let them drown in the um, uh, in the Same coast of Australia mm. uh, because we want to win the. The, the Western Sydney seat of Penrith and, and oh, it, we okay. can say, okay. oh, they're going to take Australian jobs, mm-hmm. even though they're not. Um, and, uh, but we will, we will, you know, politics, um, those swinging voters and they're often in the sort of uh, the poorer suburbs on the big cities, they will, they get pandered to. And okay. I saw this when I was involved in politics and John Howard was in and they'd show us PowerPoint slides of what to say, to say, oh, you know, we'll keep the refugees out. If you say that, people okay. are going to like you. Okay. And they know that people are going to like you because they've done polling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're regurgitating okay. 
back to, you know, the most racist, difficult people who really only, you know, if you change your vote every election, depending on who's going to pay you with more money, you're not really a particularly good person. And unfortunately, they're the people that, that decide the election. Yeah. And so this is why there's a last minute, you know, throwing out $2,000 or whatever because mm. you win those people over yeah. and you say to them, oh, we'll keep refugees out. We will... Uh, we will keep, you know, keep drug addicts in jail. And you have these kind of uh, dog whistling, they call it, these messages which mm. hit home. Mm. And um, so, uh, and unfortunately, as you said, it was Afghan war was like a football to say, oh, we are fighting terrorists and uh, we're dropping bombs. And unfortunately, dropping bombs, especially on, and it, it's, you know, it's it's a pretty, it's a strong thing to say, but it's true. The global war on terror was was really a, a war on Muslim, and it was like we, dropping bombs on people in a long way away who looked different to us was a vote winner. Mm. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Like Syria was the same when uh, Syria kicked off, and they didn't even um, try to uh, get regime change. Uh, they realised again they'd learnt the wrong lessons, mm. and this has maddened me. I was already a whistleblower by this stage, but they were. Uh, they'd realised that having bringing troops back in body bags or was bad, so they realised. But dropping bombs was good. So the Syrian war, and this is sickening. This is why they didn't send any troops on the ground. They dropped millions and millions and millions of dollars of bombs, and they put it on Twitter, and and they won votes for doing that. Even they would say things like they'd report back, and again, as a, as an experienced legal person, I could read through the lines. They'd report back and say, oh, we bombed an, we successfully bombed an ISIS uh, yeah. gun point, which actually meant a sand dune, you know. Oh. And that would cost $9 million for the bomb. And or they'd say, we, uh, we, we, uh, we destroyed an ISIS staff car, which is like a civilian car. And they would have, and they just said, everybody that lives in this area is ISIS. And so they were killing um, old men and children and, um, women and that and they're just saying oh they're not civilians they're isis you know it became extremely cynical uh and uh because it was winning votes and um uh i was disgusted by it you know the more i looked into mm. things the bigger the problem i saw so so does that mean david this is really interesting when you say that you know the war on terror is just a war on muslims is Australia in your in your experience? You are a lawyer. Of, you have three degrees. You have served in the military, the Australian military. You've served two tours in Afghanistan. You've been around. You've served as a lawyer in the Australian Army. Is Australia a sovereign country, or are we under the influence of another country that tells us what to do? That inflicts on our domestic policies as well. Australia. There is no such thing as Australia as far as foreign policy goes. That's why you can see it. I mean, the Albanese government is um is pretty good, and you see them in the, in the sense that they're putting in industrial relations uh, reforms. They're trying to put in an ICAC, but um, you really notice the difference. Um, as far as foreign affairs go, they do not have uh, a voice. Everything that they do and say, I'm surprised that the Chinese president wanted to meet Albanese because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he's just like a functionary in the U.S. administration. It's like, why would you bother meeting, you know, if, you, if you're one person, CEO of one yeah. company, and you're going to meet the CEO of the other company, you wouldn't ask to see the managing director yeah. of their Southeast Asian <laughs> branch. 
But Albanese is is has we have no opinion, and we will do whatever America because, and that's a fact because we're a member of something called Five Eyes, which is this organisation um, with the US, um, and this is not secret. Again, it's it's all public knowledge. Uh, the UK, Canada, um, New Zealand, I think, and they. But guess who runs the show? I mean, it's the US, and they decide who the enemy is. What's Five Eyes? Oh, it's it's a, it's an intelligence, supposedly an intelligence sharing organization. It's it's a sort of like a NATO of a uh, five nations. You see, that's it. The public don't even know we've been signed up to something which basically it's a bit like being in a criminal gang, um, and the US are in charge. We can't leave if we wanted to. Um, and if they say China's the enemy, uh, China's the enemy. And we don't get to say, well, China's our biggest trading partner. Exactly. That is, thank exactly. you. We shot ourselves in the foot there, didn't we? You know, three years ago, there were Chinese naval ships in Sydney Harbour, mm -hmm. right, you know, right next to our, you know, no yeah. one saw that as a problem. Yeah. 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 Uh, now, nothing major has changed um, because the US, uh, you know, they're, they're, and it's simply an economic thing. Um, we have to go, but the Australians lose out. That's why I think it's terrible. Australian farmers lose out, Australian manufacturers lose out, and for what, you know? We went into the Vietnam War with the US in good faith. That was a mistake. Everybody knows that now. The idea that, you know, communism was going to take over Australia was a lie. Mm -hmm. And um, we went into Afghanistan. We, we need to, and the thing about Australia is there are so many smart people here. You know, we don't need to... Um, we don't need to be bossed around by another yeah. country. We've got we've we've got we've got the best. We've got a better education system than America. We've got better hospitals than America. We've got, you know, um, we've got uh, so many things uh, which are better. We shouldn't be taking orders from someone who um, who's really not as smart as us, frankly. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but can I just say on that, David, is the fact that so you are an Australian citizen, Julian Assange is an Australian citizen. Your cases are being dictated by another country. Yep. So therefore that's not foreign policy, that's domestic policy taking place. Well, you're absolutely right. That's you are very, very smart. You need to be on my legal team. Yeah. <laughs> um, that does interfere, and that's one of the scary things that is beginning to interfere in domestic policy. And uh, so, but that, that's my, like, what what is going on? Like, well, they classified as national security, um, which of course, but it is domestic policy. And they wouldn't even let me give. They, this is how ridiculous it was. They wouldn't even allow my own statement in my case because it was revealing national security. But I wrote it myself. Um, with my own knowledge, but they say, oh, you know, you can't reveal that. And the, and the terrible thing is the judge can't really argue with it. The judge can ask a few basic questions, but if they insist, oh, mm. no, this is national security, he's got to accept it. And that is a problem. Yes, it is a, It is actually affecting domestic policy. I think now my attitude, having seen what happened in the public interest disclosure case, I think it's now pretty much certain I'm going to go to jail. But, I, but oh. the good thing is... Um, and this confounds my enemies because they would never, I mean, they wouldn't even give up, you know, uh, a free lunch um, for um, doing the right thing. And um, if I go to jail and I'm clearly in the right, it sends a very strong message to say, well, where we have lost our way as a, as a country. No one else, you know, Robert Smith and the generals and no one failed in the war. 
Uh, the, what does it say to the Afghan people? No one uh, is going to jail except for the whistleblower who said, mm, hang on, exactly. we lost our way. Now, that, that says something. And um, uh, that's my plan now, and uh, to hold my head up high. And, uh, but I it gives me such strength to speak to you. And I know that through you, I'm speaking to Afghans because every time I'm, I meet them, and I love the fact that you say, you know, you get sort of emotional about it because that, um, yeah, that's the sort of people I want to speak to. I want to go back to Afghanistan eventually. I want to see people that don't mind getting emotional and, and, and hug you and mean it and shake hands and just have that kind of spirit, uh, that strength of spirit, which I think is, which is, which is a beautiful thing. It's far more important than buildings or roads or mm. it, it's, it's the most important thing in life is to have that um, beauty uh, of spirit and, um, and, and to have the admiration, um, uh, the Afghan people, um, you know, that's worth, worth everything to me. Well, you know, the, the goodness comes from you, David, to, to even see anything like that. Uh, Jesus said, a container pours only what it has within it. And you're only seeing in someone else what you have in yourself. If we were going to look at someone like the US dictating what happens in Australian sovereignty something that the ex-prime minister malcolm fraser said is that we need the u.s for defense but we only need defense because of the u.s oh very good yeah, yeah he was he was pretty incredible for he's us. pretty I spot on isn't he i didn't realize that till yeah. late, late in life he had a real conversion and Make he was malcolm like fraser, well we, done to we him, have yeah. to be independent and and it's it's absolutely true because look at the situation when we have I mean because this is what what I, I sometimes look at does the Australian passport or does the Australian citizenship mean anything if you are coming up against an ally I mean do does Australia give to its own citizens to give help does it give because obviously in your case in Assange's case it's it's not the case if no. we go against an ally that Australia that is buddy buddies at an international level with Australia then the citizenship of Australia is naught yeah that's right and that's what I try to I mean obviously I'm I'm friends with the Julian Assange campaign but I I try to explain there's no point complaining to um, Anthony Albanese about it because under the Five Eyes relationship. Um, an enemy of the U.S. is an enemy of Australia, and um, uh, we have. If you upset America, uh, it doesn't matter what passport you've got; you are going to a, a jail. And the Australians can't do anything while we're in Five Eyes. It's it's something that the average Australian should know about because we've been signed up to it. And um, not everybody likes Julian Assange, but um, one day you will you will see someone who was really quite, mm. you know, absolutely blameless, mm. uh, absolutely good Australian person, uh, taken off to some sort of American uh, hellhole. <laughs> the Americans even do things like, I mean, this is pretty you know, outrageous, but the, what they call black sites where, again, a bit like Guantanamo, and they thought they were pretty clever. <laughs> they might take you to Kazakhstan yeah. and then Egypt and torture you uh, because they can get away with it in mm. Kazakhstan. There's no law there. Mm. I mean, that's disgusting. Mm. And we, we are then holding out. We have the nerve to uh, to say, oh, well, we don't like China because of their human rights. And it's like, well, 
Hang on a minute. Um, did you just say that you, you, know, you take orders from America who take people off to Kazakhstan yeah. and torture them and kill them? Uh, and you, at the same breath, you, you're saying, oh, well, we look down on regimes that don't have human rights. I mean, it's getting more and more laughable. My trial is looking more and more like a sick trial. Mm-hmm. And um, look at the Bernard Cleary case. I mean, the, the charges against him were dropped, but the government has never explained whether or not um, the Australian secret uh, intelligence agency actually bugged the very poor yes. nation of East Timor, East Timor yeah. uh, to benefit an oil company, yeah. um, which doesn't even pay tax in Australia. And then um, the foreign minister, Alexander Downer, and his 2IC ended up getting jobs with that same oil company. Mm. I mean, they should have to answer that. Maybe that didn't happen, but that's what yes, everyone says yeah. happened. Yeah. And uh, it's not good enough that they don't answer that because mm. that the idea that our security services might be working for, uh, you know, commercial interests uh, is, uh, and again, at the set, quite what was quite damning is there was a bombing in Jakarta and the Australian embassy about the same time and you think, well, maybe if our spies had been actually doing their job mm. <laughs> rather than moonlighting for oil companies, uh, those sort of things wouldn't happen. And so there are, there are big question marks, which are big questions that need to be answered. And, and I'm afraid this is why, as I said, in some ways, again, I'm, I'm, I'm almost proud to go to jail uh, being here with you today because you think someone needs to stand up. Uh, so I, you know, I don't particularly want it to be me, but it may as well be me because w- – our country is in a bad way. Yeah, I just and that level of courage, David. I mean, dear God, that level of just lion-like courage that you display. I well, mean, I, gr- I grew up on all those Second World War movies, and I, I was always kind of envious of my father's generation that they had a war to fight. Oh, gee, it's kind of funny. You got to be careful what you wish for yeah. now. And you know, I signed up and, and joined the British Army and went out to potentially fight the Soviets when. Our lifespan was like half an hour. Had the war ever kicked off with the Soviet army? But I guess now, even though I do sometimes have a deep, sharp intake of breath, I said, I say to myself, "Well, look, this is what you've always wanted. Mm. You've got the battle you've always wanted. You can't complain now. You, you know, you, you made, you swore on a Bible that you would fight." Um, and when I again, when I talk to you, I think of the Afghans. I think of how much they suffered, and how much innocent people suffered, and how many, you know, there's and a continue to suffer, David. Uh, continue to suffer. Continue, That's one of the things yeah. that annoys me. If if I get out of this, I do want to, um, uh, you know, apply to be at the ambassador or oh, at yes. least special envoy to yes. Afghanistan because I don't think it, I mean, it's it's obviously we're setting ourselves up for nine eleven point two point zero mm. by by cutting off Afghanistan and um. Again, it's the Americans have told us to, but we should engage. We should see what we can do. I mean, this is one of the things that I saw. I was ashamed of in 2000. I saw these kids walking down through the Khyber Pass. I, I have this vision I've never forgotten, Rita. Um, two girls, um, uh, under 10 probably. One of them had a, a missing a foot and she had like a crutch. And, the, and sisters obviously looked the same, helping, and helping each other walking out of the Khyber Pass. And I just thought... The West, and they were unaccompanied. Um, you know, the West could do, you know, we need to do, we could do so, so much, much better. Yeah. I don't know what happened to those girls, but I'm sure it wasn't great. And um, um, that image has stayed in my mind. Uh, we, uh, and, 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 and in 2000, people came to us when we were there doing a travel documentary. Um, 
with Afghan people with their dead children who'd starved because of the um, the, the, the famine of uh, 1999 and 1998. And uh, they were like, um, you know, we're not political, but mm-hmm. we are starving. And, and because of your sanctions, because, you know, because of the Taliban, we are dying. And uh, can't you um, do something to help us? And, it, you know, it, it was growing up in the sort of uh, Western um, stoic tradition, I guess, it didn't cry but I, I think about it afterwards that that was very that was very tough for them and why would they want to help us when we just did not do anything for them and they and that and their children uh died and um i could see the taliban's frustration because I, I could see that they um they weren't going to blow up the borders um and they uh we were there to film them and then um they couldn't get any foreign aid uh, for oh. starving. Couldn't get any foreign aid for, for the children or, you know, who are dying okay. of famine. And then uh, this is what Mullah Omar said, and I believe it too. It makes sense because they, they were still standing when we were there in 2000, December 2000. Uh, I think the Japanese or someone came to him and said, you know, we'll give you a billion, you know, a hundred billion to fix the um, the borders. And he was like... You know, that's, you know, you won't give us a cent for mm. our dying children. And yet, you're, you know, you, you can't give us enough for statues. Yeah. I mean, yeah. um, and that has a ring of truth about it for me. And to say, uh, we, we, it's, we can't disengage. And after, after Afghanistan, I'd like to do the same for China to say we can't disengage the way to, you, you might have, a disagreement with somebody down the road, but we know how these things go. If if you build up in your own mind, oh my God, um, they're terrible. I know that they're drug dealers or whatever. You end up getting into some sort of a, uh, a fight that could have been avoided. Mm. Uh, there may, uh, and people say, oh, well, you can't condone. You, the best way um, to change people's views, of course, is to uh, attraction rather than promotion to go there and also to start off with a bit of respect and to say just because you think things differently to me doesn't mean that you're wrong or you're evil but to actually come in uh and and be respectful and talk and that's the way that you might actually get um some sort of change. It's obvious stuff. It's the mm. sort of thing your listeners do every day. It's diplomacy but, 101. And, and, of course, and so much of it is, courtesy. is racism. You okay, know, it's yeah, racism. Yeah. You know, anything that's different to yeah. uh, the uh, West, mm. it, it must be wrong. They mm. must be stupid. They yeah. must be um, – uh, and this was one of the things that I learned from – I probably already knew it from my parents. You know, they had a lot of, uh, uh, you know uh, – my father, it was back in the 60s, 50s and 60s, Australia was a different place then, but, the, you know, the, the immigrants were Italians and Greeks and a lot of the people, and he was obviously at the top of his field and very expensive, but a lot of his clients were were, when, were immigrants. And it was a good illustration for me to see that just because, the, you know, they don't speak English well, um, they will give all their money to make sure their children are healthy. Yeah. And it was a good illustration for me. Year, you know, 10 years later we had... Uh, Vietnamese and more people from the Middle East, but to say uh, they they maybe speak um, you know broken English, but they love their children and they're fantastic uh, family people, and mm. um, we we should not be judging um, people on some sort of uh, 
you know, out-of-date yeah. American, you know, p- people who um, – and I think there's a lot of that goes on. We, we, we decide that we're not going to like people, mm-hmm. we're not going to engage, and we're certainly not going to learn from other countries. And this is one of the, you know, was the, in the West got taught a lesson in Afghanistan. We, these people with, you know, flip-flops and rusty weapons managed to beat us um, because they had the heart and the soul and they, mm-hmm. had, the, they had the country behind them. Um, we saw that in Vietnam as well. Oh, we had all the money in the world, but it couldn't beat um, local people um, who would fight for rice. Um, and this is one of the, the things that always struck me again. Um, you couldn't really say it out loud because in the army, but all the people that fought for us uh, did so for money and the people that fought against us did, did so for rice. You know, and that, that's, oh, a, that's a demonstration of who, who had the heart. Mm. Uh, and yeah, and we need to learn from other countries. We need to not think that the world would be better um, if, uh, if it all becomes like us. Yes. In fact, if anything, uh, it might be worse. As I said, a lot of the systems we put in Africa, because there was a lot of corruption we put in, and sometimes in, in the far-off places, tribal tribal justice um was better than uh, yeah. certainly western justice mm. but we just ruled that out of hand yeah, yeah. how could that be yes yes yeah how yeah. could how could an afghan man you know and how could this how man could, in flip-flops no yeah, more than yeah, me exactly yeah. how could this old man you know what, what well, they're, they're how ridiculous yeah. you know mm. um and yeah as i said a lot of it is is raised a lot of it is anti-islam a lot of it um we met, I met lots of people who were very happy living traditional Islamic lives. That doesn't mean everybody is, mm. but we just ruled that out of hand. Mm. You know, we, mm. we, how you know, it's not like us. Yes. It must be wrong. Mm. It must be wrong. And, you know, and I would love to be able to, to put that right and go back to Afghanistan and to sort of like to have some sort of respect um, and uh, to look in the eye and, and to sort of listen as yeah. well as, as talk and actually the first question will be how can we help wow. you rather mm. than you know we're going to change you yeah. and make you like yeah. us yeah. Uh, yeah. because there's a lot of things I mean we used to say oh well like the 15th century maybe it was in some ways but that's not necessarily a bad thing I mean they had as I said they had soul they had mm. uh, honor uh, if they said something, they meant it. If you were their guest, they bloody well they on, yeah, they, honored they, you. Yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. they they protected you. They honored you. They gave you the best seat in the house. They gave yes. you the food, and that's something. Uh, maybe that's fifteenth century, but it's something we should be thinking about ourselves. Um, it's a, uh, uh, it's a, yeah, it, 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 it's 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 a place we should be learning from, oh, not David. trying to change. That's amazing, David. I, I mean, you, you are obviously aware. Last year, what happened with Afghanistan, with the whole Allied forces leaving Afghanistan, and the kerfuffle that it was in that departure. In your experience, I just have to ask you, the the government of Afghanistan at the time that was led by Ashraf Ghani. What are your thoughts? What did what would that government did they do anything in this time phase? What were their role? Were they just sitting there? Or did they actually do anything for the people? Mm, no, they were a bit like the Albanese government in, in the uh, they were puppets. And this was one of the things that um again, we didn't have the moral high ground uh from the beginning. We thought we were put in um someone who would just do what the Americans okay. wanted. Okay. Now uh, it wasn't completely, um, you know, with bad intentions. And funnily enough, Karzai, I think, was quite heroic in some ways because he went against the Americans. Really? Of course, yeah, quite often. And unfortunately, um, 
probably a bit like my own case. He was smeared a lot as being a crazy person, and uh, because the Americans controlled the um, and uh, the narrative, and again, uh, quite funny, quite a lot of endemic, you know, subconscious racism. Mm. Uh, there, you know, mm. if he if he said, oh, you know, you, you we we don't want you um, the Afghan people don't um want special forces soldiers going to the f- houses in the middle of the night, uh, it shames them and um, uh, that they their women forever sh- they kind of thought he was a bit of an idiot, you know, ho, ho, as if anybody would would feel that, you know, oh, and he okay. and he's actually sort of even though he was an American. Uh, effectively in, in America, and he um he did actually uh he did do some quite heroic things by pushing that and saying no um it, it's a big deal for us and it might be different you mm-hmm. might well you didn't necessarily explain it well but to say yes it is different but of course he was in a difficult position because he was put in by the Americans so he couldn't emphasize it mm. too much but uh, he did occasionally stick up for the Afghan people and say. This is it's too much. This is a bridge too far. You've got to let us do okay. do our own yeah. thing. And so, yeah. I, in some ways, Ghani, I don't think was was any good. He was just a, well. The, I think it said everything about him that when uh, everything collapsed, when the Americans went, that he was he, he was caught fleeing with a car full of money and his you know. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that's true. Okay. I, 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 well, actually, I, I don't. I'm not going to die. In a, if that's not no. true, no, no, I don't. No, I have no idea. I think it, yes. that's what the going. Yeah, I believe that is true. Okay. Then that that would accord with my um, even the best of them. And mm. again, I've upset some some Afghan people who were involved in programs which which were which were useful. And I get that they probably were, but the, the problem was not that there weren't good programs, etc. But they were. Um, they was window dressing hearts and minds to say, you know, look for Instagram sort of thing. It may have may may have benefited people to say, look at the photo of this fantastic, you know, film yeah. school we built or whatever. Yeah. But it wasn't really to build a film school or help the Afghans. It was it was to really just to show temporarily um, to to show uh, uh, to win uh, win support because. The, Nothing, not that there's anything wrong with that, but because it was, it was like building a castle on on sand. Mm. It was going to collapse. And, and had they done the right thing in the first place, um, uh, if they'd gone and and had some sort of a compromised government with the Taliban, uh, we you know we could have had film schools. Mm. And, you know we could have we could have had both. We could have had a stable Afghanistan with film schools, but because we couldn't really, we weren't we we couldn't have any. Sort of a, a hardline Islamic involvement. They all had to go. There was no like the, with the elections. No one from the you know as you know and your listeners know there was no obviously there's no real Taliban mm. as such. You didn't mm. get a card, but people were loosely aligned. Yeah. But no one who was who was loosely aligned could stand in the election. Mm. So uh, it wasn't really a democracy. Um, <laughs> It was it was like you you know the only people that got to stand were the Americans Americans <laughs> candidates and um, in Afghanistan American yeah, candidates in so, Afghanistan so yeah and we tried to say and then we you know you can imagine the local people thinking we're such idiots because then we're like saying oh look at this democratic and we've made this fantastic democracy you know it's mm. like no we haven't um, we've we've created a dictatorship disguised as as a democracy and. Uh, uh, 
and the moral high ground meant not that everyone was bad. Obviously, there were very good people, very brave people, but because we didn't have the moral high ground from the beginning mm. and we were there um, because we had uh, – it goes back to the 80s and, you know, you've got long memories. But to, And this is one of the things which was quite interesting and, again, Afghans will – uh, well, no, it's true, a ring of truth. When we had one of these uh, uh, Afghan soldiers uh, change his mind or whatever and shoot shoot an Australian soldier and then run away, it was sort of a cowardly thing to do, but it, it was he probably did it for self-preservation. But when he went back to see his father, because they recorded all the conversations or whatever, he said, I've shot an Englishman. And that shows, it, that was a lesson for us about a, uh, the long memories. As mm. far as they were concerned, we were the English, right. you know, from mm. 200 years ago. There was no distinction. Um, in fact, the great game is one of those, in one of those, uh, the terrible things that I'd seen. But they, um, uh, we were not there really to help. We were, we were there, um, uh, to him, as I said, to win elections by dropping bombs and looking mm. hard, what they call it in the PR world, looking presidential. Mm. And, and looking presidential is um, is dropping bombs and saying like, oh, we will never take a backwards step or whatever. But there was no attempt to actually uh, help the Afghan people because that wouldn't win votes. Why God. would it win votes, you know? Uh, it didn't look – that didn't look presidential. If anything, they might look weak. Um, and that's one of the terrible things about democracy. Um, you can take um, – you you can actually do some terribly, um, you know, as I said, like letting the refugees drown in the, in the, the straits of Australia. I mean, the terrible things can be done because they are, they are electorally po- popular. Uh, and that was um, in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's a shame because uh, ten of us, you, me, and, and, and ten other, we could have actually made a go of it, um, with, especially with six trillion dollars. God um, Almighty! But th- there, that was never really the intention because there were certain um, there were certain lines in the sand, and anyone who who was um, who had a, a traditional sort of background was not going to be allowed to speak. Um, everything had to change. Everything had to be made into some sort of mini in Europe. They weren't. Uh, they, in fact, there was even a plan. Um, this is one of the really sad things. I mean, this this shows you how vacuous and and how despicable we were when we were shown around by the Taliban. And this is something that those who demonise, you know, the Taliban forget and 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 they were a product of their their context and again the context created by the americans um arming everybody in the 80s just to kill russians but they did um they did destroy the poppy uh even though a lot of people depended on it millions of people uh passed an edict and said it was bad and didn't Mm. want uh, the drug addiction was Mm un-islamic and they were the sort of people as you know that if they said something it it happened yeah yeah they didn't you know, you couldn't bribe them. Mm, mm. This is one of the things that we hated about. It. And so, it's what you hate about the Taliban. No, no, this is what you know. The Westerners hate. Yes, hate, they hate. Yeah, I yep. think that they, the Americans tried to do an oil deal with them in the late in the late nineties, but because they wouldn't, they couldn't be, be completely bought. Wow, uh, it, the deal fell apart. But that's actually, and of course, then we de- we totally demonized them. But mm. yeah, they, they there's a movie been made about it. They're actually, you know, the Texans were trying to do a deal with them. Mm. Uh, and yeah, they, they 
you know, they obviously did a lot of extremist things, but they that the, the flip side of that is when they said that there's no going to be any poppy, there was no poppy. Yeah. So we showed it around. And uh, and they showed us the fields and the burnt and whatever, mm. and uh, they just said, you know, that was the way. It was a very, it was like an army camp, and it was. I'm not saying it was great, I mean, obviously, but it was a product of thirty years beforehand. And um, but when we came, when the West took over, uh, Poppy started getting regrown. And while we put in missions to kill uh, Poppy farmers, which was illegal, by the way. Um, based on an American uh, Drug Enforcement Agency plan, which they'd just taken from the sort of Colombian uh, idea, and they called it Plan Afghanistan, which was named, which was taken straight from Plan Colombia. Um, they, uh, if you were related to uh, 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 Karzai's brother, um, uh, Hamad Ali Karzai, I think his name was, but uh, yeah, your poppy didn't get, you know, you, you you were allowed to grow poppy, you know. And so it was, again, it was just a sort of way to get their enemies. Are and, you kidding uh, me? Yeah, no, no, it was terrible. Oh it's disgusting. And that's a fact. That's not, that's again, it's in the public uh, realm. But to say we went there and we're all high and mighty about this and that, but the Taliban uh, got rid of the poppy and we brought it back. Uh, and not only that, we we as uh, in the Australian. Uh, well, the you know the, the, the American okay. forces, okay. which right. Australia, but Australia just was just, like the laptop. Yeah. We okay. did whatever they said. We didn't, but we didn't even complain. You would have thought if it was a partnership, we would have said, "Oh, we mm. don't like this. We don't like that." We never did that. Uh, and um, we, uh, yeah, we killed pop, poppy growers who didn't have the seal of approval from the government, and that was bad because poppy growers are not Taliban. We didn't have the. Uh, uh, under the under the law, you can't do that. And you can if they are Taliban. They, and I, this is one of the things. And I got a, a sort of a, a distinction uh, in this subject when I did the day and you. But to say you can't simply say um, anyone that grows poppies Taliban uh, because it's convenient. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's what we did say. Mm. And we just killed them. And uh, it's actually murder. And the Australian government were behind that. And they and we have a lot of very good lawyers. We knew that was wrong. But um, we just let the Americans uh, tell us what to do. And um, uh, and again, it was embarrassing because to think that, um, I mean, there were plenty of people who had the same qualifications. Uh, I had masters in law from ANU. And they... Uh, they were just letting it slide, and that's you know Afghan people are dying. And so, what are they going to think of us? What are they going? They know. Uh, again, we assume that they're stupid, but they know there's a murder brigade out there killing people who are just trying to survive. Uh, so, which side are you going to join? You know, if you weren't Taliban, uh, you before you were afterwards. Yeah, and, yeah. Well, how can uh, you not exactly, be? What other choice exactly. do you have? There's people coming in and blow you up, but the next door Taliban, the next door poppy farmers allowed to, you know, and uh, you'd say, what sort of example do we set? So, so David, I, I mean, that completely. What I mean with these wars that are going on from Vietnam to Iraq to Syria, what's the end game? Like what? Because now, because we were discussing before, like and we touched on it, the war in China, the Chinese cyber attack, and there is this just big thing about China. What is the end game? Because the em- what's happening with China at the moment, and what's bubbling up in the surface. And John Pilger did a documentary that there's a covert war taking place with China, and with what you're saying, it's it's really coming into the, the wheels are turning in direction towards that. 
what is the end game? Well, just power and money? And for how long? For 80 years, 90 years until you die? Like what is the end game? I'm glad you asked, but I, I pause because it, um, it sounds kind of a, a grandiose or whatever, but um, as I said, I, I, uh, I came from a, a legal background. I came mm-hmm. from a soldier background. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, um, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. And uh, I, I haven't uh, – uh, I've read a lot um, uh, in the past 10 years. There's one thing I have done. I've been on six, so I've read a lot. And I don't – I would love to be able to say that there is some uh, – that that's not true. But th- this is one of the – again, one of the things that inspires me and knows that I'm on the right track. It's not about Afghanistan. It's not a, a no longer about the last war. It's about the next war, uh, and and it was. This is one of the reasons why it was quite hard to sell it to journalists because while they will cover, and I can understand this, you know, they will cover a rape, they will cover a, um, you know, a single war crime, um, but the big issues we are actually far more dangerous, and the idea that. Uh, a country that will lie about why we're in Afghanistan and lie about the fact that we're um, winning when we're not winning and cover up war crimes, these are symptoms of a bigger problem. They're not the, they're not the big problem. And this is what I, I was worried about. So if it was just a matter of war crimes being the problem, putting a couple of corporals in jail would solve the problem, mm. but it's not. That's not it at all. Uh, if we went to war for 20 years and sent mm. six trillion and probably killed, they say a hundred thousand, but I imagine it must be twice that. Let alone, I think, worse than the casualties. Uh, we killed a lot of people in the Second World. Worse than the casualties is the damage to the uh, the reputation of the West in the world. Um, that is that is you know that is priceless. Um, we have damaged our brand so badly. And uh, it's about the next war. You know, if we go to war cynically and in Afghanistan and we draw it out for as long as possible and we don't make a difference and then we give it back to the same people that we said were hell on earth uh, just because mm, time's up and we want to go into something else, we are the sort of people who will go to war with China just to win an election. Mm. I mean, that's what I was trying to get across to the press. And of course, it was all just too big, too too big. It sounds too conspiracy theory to say it's not a, it's like um, if you've got, a, and I always try to bring it back to normal examples. You've got a partner, it turns out is a, uh, cheating on you and stealing money from the accounts and uh, drug dealing. And um, it's not about, the, well, obviously, the, harrowing as that is it's not about the, their behavior in the past but it's like what are they going to do next mm. you know and i i can tell you as someone who is not a conspiracy theorist who has, who has read all these things and and got as i said got a distinction average in the anu not very longer uh we we want a war in china and you know we will what all the americans do and it's for economic reasons. I mean, they, they haven't forgotten the lesson that uh, uh, the Great Depression almost destroyed America when they over, everyone thought, you know, make more products, make more products, make more products, and didn't realize it's, a, you know, if you don't have markets or, or whatever, 
the whole thing can collapse. But the Second World War saved America. Mm. They emerged not only, uh, un, you know, they emerged the most powerful country yes. in the world. Yes. I haven't forgot that lesson. Mm. Uh, they, are, they are struggling financially. I mean, and it's, people think, oh, they're so wealthy, they couldn't do anything wrong, they're so smart. But we saw in um, the global financial crisis, and, and that is a very good movie called The Big Short, which people mm-hmm. should watch. But mm. the, you know, the the Wall Street can be wrong. They yeah, can oh, be stupid. They can be fools, and they can sure. be bankrupt. And they are um, they a war is good for business. And um, we are as Pilger. I didn't know that Pilger had said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met him. He's a charming man. And um, and and you know, twenty years. It's funny that in as part of my trajectory, I used to see him as a sort of devil and the sort of oh really. And uh, even though he worked with, funnily enough, he worked with my dad, oh, which is a beautiful thing to wow. think that he was, he must have been very young then, 20 or something, because back in the 70s, because he's still going strong. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but it sounds simplistic, but that, uh, that's how sad we've become, where uh, they will want to, we will find an excuse to go to war with China. That China doesn't have to do anything. We will find a flashpoint, you know. Bit like we we look for flashpoints. We we need. It's a bit like if those of you got children, and um, uh, I've got two daughters, and this is often the case. It's not necessarily the one that throws the first punch who's the guilty party. Uh, the other one can be needling, 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 uh, <laughs> uh, and really, you know, it, it, it's actually their fault. Mm. And that's what we do. Um, we're China. We are we are kneeling them every time they say something. We're like, oh my God, they want to go to war, and we paint, you know, we mistranslate their comments and 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 whatever because we are trying to create a situation where uh, a war is inevitable. And even if it's a just build up, and this is one of the reasons why I think we left Afghanistan was because it wasn't lucrative enough. It was it was expensive, but you couldn't sell. Uh, F-35 yeah. fighter jets because there was no need for them. You couldn't sell submarines. You couldn't sell uh, aircraft carriers. But China, on the other hand, well, all of those things are needed, you know. Mm. I think if the Chinese, we weren't fighting the Chinese. This is one of my suspicions about um, uh, sort of like they're saying that the US military are saying that aliens have been discovered. They want, you know, they can sell very expensive fighter planes. You wonder who we're going to fight with these F-35, you know, which are worth, you know, many, many billions each plane. Uh, we certainly don't need them to fight the Afghans, but um, maybe we need them to fight the aliens, you know, and it's a, it's a way to sell equipment. They need enemies, you know. Democracies need enemies, and if they've got an enemy, uh, enemies are good for elections. And the Chinese uh, well, have really helped, you know, Joe Biden's popularity went down after he withdrew from Afghanistan, even though it was a sensible thing to do because it wasn't going anywhere. And uh, it's gone up um, as a result of the Ukraine. And uh, the sad, this is one of the problems I have with, about democracy. The sad thing is uh, that those swinging voters who go red one day, blue the next, uh, they love war and they will... Uh, uh, if you say, "Oh, we have to fight the Chinese," and you know, you, you will you will get elected, and that's a terrible thing. So, um, war, and you'd think that we wouldn't be so cynical that we would fight a war uh, to win an election. But the sad thing, and again, I've been in politics, and I'm uh, I'm old enough to have seen a lot of things, and uh, um, the terrible, terrible conclusion I've got is that we would. 
And that's what makes my blood boil again, going out to the Afghans to say, how dare we uh, be patronizing and look down our noses uh, at them uh, when we have become so morally bankrupt that in order to win an election, uh, we would actually uh, destroy uh, a country and, and not only that, but our soul in the, the 500 years we've been working towards parliamentary democracy to throw it away overnight uh, for the sake of some donations or, uh, you know, a pretty average office in Canberra. I mean, it's really, it, it's pretty disgusting and we don't have any moral high ground to teach mm. the world how to do things uh, when we have become so morally bankrupt. Uh, in this country. So you think even if, regardless of who becomes Prime Minister in Australia, blue or red, who's Foreign Minister, it won't make a difference. The same policies, the same outlook will still be taken. Well, here we go. A little bit of a good news story, a little bit ridiculous. Um, And I hope if I go to jail and more people come after me, we can break... um, uh, break out of five eyes, finally break that strategic relationship. I mean, it's a huge ask, but why not, uh, you know, go big or go home, they say. Uh, uh, yes, uh, unless we break that chain, we will always do what the Is American there a want. way to break the chain? Well, I mean, apparently it's how? difficult because people I've read recently, they said this is why Whitlam got got Go, go Whitlam, yeah. Yeah, it was not actually anything to do with the Queen. Um, oh. But it was actually quite a lot to do with the Americans because he was trying to get rid of the base um, or at least he was going to even look into getting rid of the Pine Gap and, and couldn't see, a bit like Fraser, couldn't see that... The, the, we, we couldn't be independent, and, and lo and behold, next thing you know, he's gone. And certainly one of the things WikiLeaks revealed, which I find very disturbing, but again, hasn't been refuted, and it's uh, documents from the American Embassy listing uh, various Australian politicians who were in that stage in opposition um, and putting in brackets or not whether or not they were kind of owned, protected is the word they used, by the embassy, by the US Embassy. And... Uh, Oh, it makes my it makes my skin crawl even to say it. But that's never been. This is one of the terrible things about WikiLeaks. You know, Julian Assange wasn't going to die in jail, but that's and the, but the important things are being missed. Uh, the idea that the American embassy in Australia, you know, buys up and coming politicians is, you know, that should scare every Australian because it's not that the American people are particularly bad, but we don't vote in the American elections, mm. and therefore they shouldn't have the right to take us to war. It's pretty simple. Mm. That's why we have a democracy, and if we don't vote in their elections, um, they shouldn't be able to control us. And uh, yes, there's probably trading partners, but we've, we've seen, I guess that's what really scares the Americans is because we've found in China an equally... Uh, uh, a, a lucrative trading partner and I guess they worry and we are very important to the Americans often we say oh oh well you know we need them to protect us actually we are very very important we're a bit like the swinging voters uh, in democracy yeah in the sense that they could not have gone to war in Iraq for example unless we uh, supported them because they, they can't do it completely and on and probably Vietnam as well they will get too much um 
criticism around the world if they do things totally on their own. But if they can say, oh, it's not, it's not us, it's a coalition of the willing, it's Australia and uh, in the UK and every, and that's obviously was such a uh, uh, crock because when we were in Afghanistan, we didn't, we didn't have our own helicopters. We got flown around with American helicopters. We didn't have our own bases. We lived in an American base. We had American food. Uh, so we were really just uh, actors in an American war. We didn't, um, uh, and the idea that we are a separate nation who agree with America after some sort of a uh, deep thought is a lie. We we are we are a proxy of them, and um, but it makes them able to commit to these uh, foreign wars because um, uh, they can say, "Oh, look, Australia's." You know, and if we were able to break that, or at least we don't even have to break it. We just need to say to them, uh, "You, um, you have to up your rates." You know, you, we we you, we we might be available for rent, but we expect higher standards. I mean, this doesn't mean we have to go to war with them, but it, like as we say, you know, friends don't let friends drive drunk. You've got to. Um, we need to stand up and say, "Yes, you know, we're your friends. We speak the same language. We we have a shared cultural history." But there are limits, and if you want to buy uh, our uh, allyship, um, you have to. Um, there are certain red lines. Uh, you can't you can't do weapons of mass destruction, for example. You mm. can't you can't have secret prisons. You can't um, you can't make up stuff. Uh, and you can't start wars. We don't. That's not the Australian way. That's all we would have to do. And, you know, you might get deposed as prime minister, but, God, I think everybody in Australia would be like, thank God we finally have a prime minister who simply uh, says to the Americans, we want to be your friends, but you've got to behave uh, to our standards. I mean, Australia, we've always wanted to punch above our weight. We always had a bit of a chip on our shoulder. This would be a way we could do that. Mm. We could finally... Uh, we're not going to be the most powerful country in the world in 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 terms of military, but we could be uh, one of the most powerful countries in the world by being uh, the referee, by being a, a voice of reason. Uh, we've got a very good grounding to do it in that we've got people like yourself. We've got people from all over uh, the world, uh, different religions, um, different backgrounds. We've got Vietnamese. In Afghans and Iranians, um, Russians, you know, we would, and Sudanese, we would be in a very good position to actually uh, not be totally biased towards the sort of British American tradition, but actually say, hang on, what's the right thing to do? Uh, taking into account all perspectives. Uh, and that would make us very powerful, and that would give us a real self-respect, which I think we lack now. Mm. Uh, and that's what I'd like to see. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a tall order. Tall order. Uh, but why not aim big? I've got plenty of good people like yourself to help. Oh. Me <laughs> well, you know, I think the world has hope with people like you in it, David, because what you're doing is. God knows it's not easy to put your hand up and say, "I'm going to stand up against you." And then not only to your country of origin, but to a superpower that um, you know is dictating a lot of what your country I know, of origin I is laugh, doing. I laugh about that. I was I, I joke about it to say when I told my wife at the time, Sarah, oh, "Look, I'm going to. I've taken documents out. I'm I'm trying to you know take on the the, the generals and." Uh, and uh, 
Shim saying, oh, yeah, well, that's, you know, admirable. And I'm, but also, you understand, I'm taking on the Australian government. And yeah. then, uh, yeah, that's good. And then, um, well, good on you. I guess if you're right, you're right. And then, but you understand that that really means I'm taking on the White House. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know, and it's kind of if you draw it down. And, um, but hey, that's what they do in the movies. And uh, I, I, I wouldn't like nothing better than to see, um, uh, because I just believe it's been overtaken by the wrong sort of people. And um, it's not impossible that they can write themselves. And yeah, it is It is kind of a tall order, but gee, we, we, we have to. The idea, that, I was thinking about it today on the drive now, the idea that Edward Snowden yes. is stuck in Russia. Yes. Uh, Julian Assange is in Belmarsh. Um, Donald Trump, either Donald Trump or... Or, you know, Kamala Harris is going to be the next president of, of the United States. Um, Australia doesn't have uh, its own foreign policy. It, it makes you want to go to jail. You, <laughs> you just kind of think, sheesh, sheesh, what have we, you know, what have we come to? I oh, wish God. I've only, you know, I had more than one life to go. <laughs> Because you'd say something needs to be done. Wow, wow, you know? amazing. You, you kind of think um, something is wrong. Can I ask, because I know you've got, um, you've, you've had PTSD from all of this, not only in your time uh, being on tour, but also tour of duty, but also what's happened the past 10 years. You've got a little little friend of yours that's in the studio with us at the moment. Um, and I wanted to know, how are you coping? How are you going on? Because this is a lot. I mean, we're talking about it now. But on an individual, this has a lot going on for you mentally, psychologically, physiologically. How are you today? Again, you don't really r- realize it. And again, <laughs> I often wonder, I, I can't imagine I'm ever going to be, um, if, I, if I can't uh, change the world, uh, my second uh, plan B m- might be to write some sort of a, a mental health uh, book, <laughs> <laughs> Instagram. Yeah, um, yeah. But um, because I, I didn't really notice it, but often people say to me, how the hell are you, you know, you're surviving? And you don't really think about it. And um, uh, I guess I do. Uh, I don't like to blow my trumpet, but I guess I have um, done something right in that regard. It hasn't always been easy. But um, uh, to, to, uh, to work out how you can um, uh, put one foot in front of the other and um, each day, even though uh, you know, there's a pretty good chance without being overdramatic that you're going to die in jail and you've got an, you've only got another year. And, and, and particularly galling when your only crime is actually doing what you mm. thought was right in the first place. I mean, that was one of the things that really twisted me up. And I think that's why the early years were so hard was I was like, you know, on my own and pacing around saying, I am just doing my job yeah. and and yet I am being treated as if I am, you know, you know, a, a, a terrible criminal. Mm. Uh, that was hard. Mm. That was, they're, they're the hard years. And I guess that's how I can really help people who are in the same position. Maybe that will really be my life's mission, but to say, don't give up. Um, you can... Uh, you can see your way through it, um, and if you if you do believe you're doing your job, um, you you just have to stick with it. Now it's so much easier because now I've met people like you, and as I said, you know, years ago this is all I wanted. Mm. Uh, you don't need majority support, as I said. I think I can go to jail with my head held up high. Oh, you yes. do need some support though, and you couldn't um, 
it is very hard on your own because they gaslight you and they white ant you and they smear you and it's um uh I do have my little my my doggy here. Yeah. He is um one I I do I, I do a couple of things. I exercise a lot, that's got me through it. Um I uh I did drink a lot of alcohol to begin with. Um, that was, uh, I don't recommend that, but I mean, mm. I, I, I managed to get through that. I don't drink any now. Um, and I, uh, I exercised a lot. I, I tried to go back to the happier times before I, um, uh, uh, before I became a whistleblower. And when I was at Oxford University, I was a, a, a champion boxer. Wow. And, uh, and I, um, I, uh, it was probably the one sport I was really any good at. So I've taken that up again. In fact, Excellent. I've recently went into competition. Oh, very up in, cool. Uh, <laughs> up in Brisbane, it was like, what was it? The Masters, Pan Pacific Masters nice. game. Nice. They had, it was a really good tournament, I have to say. Yeah. They had 70, they had two 77 year olds. Wow. <laughs> well Pretty done. incredible. And, uh, <laughs> different weight divisions and and i uh i, I wasn't very good um but i'm <laughs> gonna keep doing it because i i really i really liked it and i i guess i can uh i can take a punch uh my friend <laughs> jordan shanks he sort of says oh you know your life is becoming uh like rocky you know you're in there in the ring you're getting punched and you're taking a punch and and, and it's kind of like that gallows humor is important when mm. the other whistleblowers and i get together and uh, Troy Stoltz is the sort of uh, the club's New South Wales money laundering was away. He might be going to jail too, and we're like, oh, oh. he's like, I'm. You can have, you know, I'm. I'm going to have the bottom bunk. You can have the top bunk, and and um, <laughs> you know, God and uh, but yeah. So the gallows oh. humour is good. You need to find a, a few other people who kind of get what you're going. Other whistleblowers are good. It's funny. I met a whistleblower when I first joined the military, and when I was one of the jobs as as inquiry officers, as lawyers, as you as you shut down whistleblower, and so I thought this guy was a bit of an idiot because I knew he was a member, and it's great again with my sort of trajectory and my story, I've come to real you know the whistleblower societies have helped me, um, and uh, but you uh, you realize yeah, and I we went to a conference last weekend, and it was really nice because they're the they're the the people that really um that that kind of get um what you're going through so surround yourself well not surround yourself but i mean uh don't give up on um popular imagery i got through a lot by um watching movies and um reading books and uh and, and i always think of things people that did it tougher than me i you know back in i think of the i, I read the books about the second world war non-fiction and kind of think oh well course you're not going to have overnight success the war was like six years long and they made small progress each day but small pro that helps me i think you have to see things in quite um heroic sort of terms and, and that that's not a bad thing but if you if you think what you're doing is right um you you can cut yourself a little bit of slack and you can uh you know think you know, see yourselves in, in terms of a movie <laughs> um and doesn't necessarily have to be you know totally heroic but i mean uh, that helped me you certainly have to your your brain can be your your greatest enemy and your and your and your greatest friend and so mm. you have to look after that and you have to see that you know you might never one of the, the the turning points is you think well i might never get you know the uh this sort of credit you know that yes I, I might never you know get popular support but that's okay 
because I like myself. One of the, the big realizations I had uh, back in the dark days when I didn't really have any support except for my wife and I was lying on the bed of our house and I was off sick and I knew that my career was over and I knew that um, uh, I probably was, you know, my first complaints hadn't succeeded and I think I'd even seen Chris Masters and he wasn't going to run with the story. But uh, I laid back on the bed and I thought, I had this strange paradoxical thought. I thought, I like myself. I thought, oh, it's so funny. I thought, you know, none of this is kind of working out. But I thought, looking up at the roof and the house we were going to have to sell, um, I mean, I, for the first time in my life, I liked myself, which is quite paradoxical. But I would say that to would be whistleblowers. And I, I, I always knew that, you know, you know, the cliche is you've got to love yourself and all that sort of, but I never really did love myself. I didn't despise myself, but mm. I liked myself when I did good things and I, and, I, and I was kind of uncomfortable with myself when I didn't do the right thing. I had the sort of like father's voice in my head. I didn't walk around really liking myself, but when, when I'd, I'd taken on this sort of impossible um, – task um and even though it wasn't even going very well i suddenly liked myself and that was quite i laughed at that myself because i thought that was quite funny uh and one of the things you need to get used to again sort of black humor and it goes back to the greek myths which i like very well but the essence of being a hero is not so much um uh you know accolades and quite the opposite it's actually um before you get any accolades, you get most people you, you think you're an idiot. You know? <laughs> the man, yeah. the man that charges the yeah. guns, you know, uh, on his own. Most people watching are like, "What a fool!" Yeah. You know, yeah. and um, so you do have to go through that stage where uh, most people, um, you know, think you're foolish or stupid or crazy, uh, and you have to be able to deal with that. That's that's yeah. again, that's uh, it's sort of this black humor I have with myself. But that's very true what you're saying because they say truth goes through three stages. First, it's violently opposed. Then it's ridiculed. Then finally, it's accepted as truth. Yeah, and that's right. And again, this would be some a lesson for your, uh, you know, female executive uh, uh, clients. And a lot of the time, they would have similar experiences. They might not have been in the industry for that long, um, but they will have. Uh, genuinely good ideas maybe a different perspective but they'll be ridiculed or they'll be made to feel like you know what would you know and, and you have to be able to ride that out mm, um, mm. and you know i know i've heard stories of some of them they go out and start their own business it's very successful but yet yeah, you have to be able to to deal with um the fact that people will um ridicule you and you'll be on your own you'll second guess yourself that's mm. one of the lessons i mean even though you put a brave face on it um there's, there's probably at least two two things going on inside everybody's brain. And I saw this with my dad. He always put a brave face on it. And even after he got struck off, he was he never took a backward step mentally. My mother worried a lot, but he was very uh, – he had a very uh, positive attitude. My yeah. oldest daughter's got that. But we, when we were out door knocking, um, when I, back in, in the uh, – I don't need to explain to you. You already knew when I was a, 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 a would-be politician – we came across a door um, and um, we knocked on it and an older lady came and, she, and, and, and he said, I'm William McBride, this is my son David. And, he's, uh, and she said, I know exactly who you are, Doctor. I worked in Crown Street um, Hospital uh, back in the late 50s and 
I, you told me, I was in the, in the pharmacy and you told me to take thalidomide off the shelves because um, you thought it was dangerous and I did. And he just wow. started crying because wow. even though he put on a brave face, yeah. something inside of him had begun to doubt whether it had yeah. really happened. Wow. And my it was God. so nice. And he That's just, incredible. but I'd never seen him get emotional yeah. like that before. Yeah, but just, I'm a bit the same. Uh, you know, I do, I put on a brave face and I say, oh, look, I'm ready to go to jail or whatever. Um, but it does wear you down on the inside. I mean, when we, when we realised we couldn't win, the, the, the deck was stacked against us uh, last uh, a couple of weeks ago in the Public Interest Disclosure Act. My ex-wife, who, who I'm still very, very close with because she's fought this side by side, uh, it was a strange moment in court because while I knew that we, we had lost and we were going to withdraw, the, the audience at the back of the court didn't know. Not only could they not hear what was going on, it was all legal gobbledygook anyway. And so we started to shuffle out of court and my wife and all the, the uh, spectators thought it was just an adjournment. And she looked at me at, at the back of the court and I said, it, she said, what's happening? And I said, it's, uh, we're going straight to jury trial. Um, she just let out a scream. She let, oh. she screamed. She screamed, and she's not the sort of person that would ever do that. But it's it's just a build up, and I yeah. totally got it. I had to hug her or whatever. She just screamed, and everyone was like, as if she'd been stabbed. Because it, and I could understand why, because wow. she had been through that ten years, and me. This is what mm. really stuck her throat. I mean. Uh, I love the military, and I couldn't wait to, you know, to do my two tours of Afghanistan. But it's it's a big ask. I had two young kids. Obviously, the SAS people often did eight tours, but I had a three year old kid who has had, she doesn't mind me saying, mental health issues as a probably as a result of me going away so much at that age, and th- me her thinking that maybe I was going to die. Um. And it's a big ask. It's a big ask. And I don't mind that. But then when you turn around and trash those people mm. who have done that for your country, I mean, she in some ways, you know, at least I get to, to fight each day or sort of on social media or whatever, but she has to sort of – she just was – yeah, she was – and that's what – I like to bring it up because it reminds the people in the defence force and the attorney generals who are fighting me and they kind of think, oh, well, McBride's this kind of unlikable guy. But I have, uh, you know, I have a, a, a loving, she might be my ex-wife, but she's a very, very important person. Uh, and everything they do to me, they do to her. Yeah. Everything they do to her, they do to my two daughters. Uh, it's not some sort of a game. Oh. It takes a toll. These are mm. good Australians. These are these are the sort of people who are who were happy. Uh, she came from a very privileged background. She became an army wife, and she was happy to do so, uh, and 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 live a, a very hard existence while I went to Afghanistan. I think it's harder than being a single mum because you never know when the phone's going to ring and it's mm. going to be someone saying your husband's mm. dead, and you live on tender hooks. Um, and this is why I've always, you know, support where where I possibly can. I support the uh, SAS soldiers because they did, you know, I did it twice. They did it eight times, and it's 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 a big ask. Mm. Uh, they don't, we don't deserve, you know, um, 
you know, the keys to the city, but you don't trash them. You don't, you don't, and, and uh, yeah, she had been through a lot. And you can imagine me hiding the documents at home and slowly, slowly becoming, deciding that I was going to turn against uh, uh, Australia and, and, and her so totally supporting it. But it's been a huge road for her. And the idea that the, um, the Attorney General's office or, or ACES or the Americans, whoever it was, said, you know, you can't even, you don't even have a defence. You're going to go to jury trial. That just, uh, she's not a lawyer, but she knows a bit about the law and she she knew mm. that it was wrong and she knew that uh, Australia was not the was not the country um, mm. that she grew up in. And, uh, yeah, that scream just said it all to say, um, it, this is so wrong. And, uh, you know, it, it, I've always speak up for her. So, I mean, people who, who uh, put their life on the line, the good people um, for a country, young people that kind of volunteer and take that, um, uh, take that burden like myself. And this is why I say I look like I have to give my life, I'm, I will do so. I mean, that's what every, everybody who's honest um, joins. And that's what happens when you join the Defence Force of any country. So... Um, those people should never be taken for granted. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And the fact that you're going to jury trial and they you weren't given the tr a trial prior to that is simply because, and you're, the reason why you don't want that is because, well, the jury can be selected, and it could be people that are, like you said in an article, I think are its spies or. Oh, you've done like so much work. Um, that's right. I mean, you, because you this is one of the things that I know. Again, because of, of the. Um, the insight I have, being a high up military lawyer in special forces, um, mm. I know what they can do to someone, and this is why Bernard Cleary and I had such a hard time. We're classified not as defendants, even though that's the case. We're classified as national security threats. So that mm. means they can bug our phones. Yeah. Um, they can uh, set us up with people. They can, meet, you know, people can meet us in cafes who are actually agents and. Uh, I believe that I was trying to get talked into sort of armed revolution by someone who was actually a government agent. Oh. Um, and, uh, you know, you meet uh, – they can do things that to us that they could do to an al-Qaeda operative mm. uh, trying to blow up the Harbour Bridge um, in that they can uh, follow you and stalk you and, and actually uh, guide you in, in certain ways. Now um, – yeah, they could they could play the national security card, and they could they could uh, get agents on the jury. Um, they can stop any evidence going in which could help me, and uh, and only let evidence go in that helps them. Um, and they think that that's actually you know they think that they're protecting democracy, but they, they, it's outrageous. But that's that's why I think I will and certainly be convicted now. I'm even though I, before I thought I would certainly win. Um, because they, they, I believe, even more than any other whistleblower, I think they're out to get me because I've been so outspoken, because I've been so critical, and because I've been so critical of the war effort and all the things that I've said to you today that I think we'll walk into a war with China. They hate that. They mm. hate that. And so it's become a bit like Julian Assange. It's become personal, yeah. and they are not going to stop. It's got nothing to do with it. I'm obviously not a security threat. I only spoke to some very trusted ABC journalists. I could have easily gone to the Chinese or the Russians mm. or someone. Didn't do that. I'm clearly not a security threat, but they, 
it's a revenge match, uh, and they want revenge, and they will do whatever it takes um, to put me in jail. As I said, the one thing that really confounds them is that I walked uh, into jail with my head held high and uh, say, uh, you haven't beaten me. Um, I, um, I will show you that I'm a superior person uh, by uh, going to jail and knowing I'm right and not taking a backward step. Mm. Uh, and they hate that. They will hate that and they will do everything they can not to let that happen because that is so beyond their realm of their understanding that anyone would believe uh, in something so much that they would go to jail and not cower. They were hoping I'd plead guilty years ago. Cower and say, oh, please don't put me in jail. Please, oh, oh, oh I'll do anything you want. I'll say anything you want. Because you know, mm. that's what they would do. Yeah. And they hate to see someone. I mean, I'm not that I'm special. God, look at the, you know, I learned from the Afghans and I learned that, you know, there are people who are very, very proud people, uh, God, and walk to their deaths. And they think of that shepherd boy and the parents looking for him and probably getting shot themselves. I mean, there are plenty of people in the past who have, you know, walked bravely to the gallows and, um, not just me, but, but they inspire me. And unfortunately, we don't. As I said, I, this is why I look to Afghanistan, a country where they haven't lost the idea of honour, they haven't lost the idea of heart, they haven't lost the idea of you judge people by, um, you know, you, you, you treat people as guests until you've otherwise and you judge people from what you, what you see of them rather than what mm. you're told to think. Um, and I love that. And I, uh, but I'm, I'm inspired by people who, um, uh, uh, you know, who wrote, translated the Bible into English, you know, and, and the person that first did that, he was murdered by the state um, and uh, simply for doing that, mm. you know, and that's just disgusting. Mm. And then apparently I, I think as little as two years later, uh, he, Tyndall's uh, version of the Bible suddenly became the standard wow. version, Amazing. but not before they yeah. killed him. Yeah. You know, and uh, so then people need to remember that, that things haven't changed that much. And just because you work for the government and you think you're right, you may be on the wrong side. Mm. And uh, uh, I have to, um, I have to stand up and be counted. But um, uh, maybe that will make people change their minds. But it's. Uh, yeah, they, they kind of hate that. They hate that anyone can stand up to them. And, and, and as I said, it can only be a revenge thing because it clearly makes no sense that um, revelations about uh, a murder on a hillside in Oruzgan in 2012 can actually be national security information. Like it's not the code to the, um, mm. uh, the missiles mm. on the... Uh, yet to be built um, subs. It's not some sort of a uh, agent's name in a in a country we're fighting. They try to claim all these things. It's just embarrassment. Yeah. And the average person knows that to say really. Average person is very patriotic and the average person thinks, oh, well, if the government says something, it's probably true. But um, uh, I'm, I'm here to tell them that that's not the case mm. anymore. It might have been the case once, but now we uh we are out for revenge uh it's clearly there's nothing um the idea that ev even my expert witnesses one of them was a professor yeah couldn't talk <laughs> so, wasn't allowed to talk yeah like witness, i mean how yeah. could that be how could that be national security information it's just 
these people have got out of control and it's revenge. They really, they will do everything they possibly can. In fact, some days I'm surprised I'm still alive. Oh, don't but, say that, David. To, uh, oh, to, uh, to, to, to put me down. Well, what can we do as the public, David, to support you? Because I know you have a GoFundMe because you're not working because you've lost your career by speaking up about Afghanistan, by exposing all of this information. You're pretty much on bail at the moment. I'm on bail. I am working. Um, uh, I do a little bit of uh, cr criminal law. In fact, oh. I don't know whether your, your audience is around the world, but if your audience is in Canberra or in Sydney and you've got a some sort of minor, minor charge, everything oh, from uh, not wearing a mask to, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, um, drink driving mm -hmm. or, or, or yeah. whatever, I'm very happy to represent you in court. Oh, that's brilliant. I particularly like guilty pleas where people say I had a bad day. <laughs> Uh, I get a good result and I come in there with my dog, uh, charge very reasonable rates. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and that was a nice, that was a nice, when I, we plot the sort of if I am successful, uh, that was a sort of a milestone when I, because I didn't, I didn't lose my license as a lawyer, but I didn't bother reapplying mm. in the sense that I, it, the trial was three weeks away or mm. something. And I was like, well, you know, I was, I thought, what's the point? Mm. Um, but then last year, uh, my lawyers said, look, you, you've, when we got a year's uh, adjournment, they said you need to support yourself. And, and they applied for me um, to get my life. And that was really great. And I always give credit to the New South Wales Law Society. They gave it to me. They, they actually did some research like you have done. And they quoted some of the things I'd said. And they said, this person believes he was in the right. He believes he was doing the right thing as, as a lawyer. Therefore, until that's proved otherwise, we don't see any reason why we shouldn't give him his practicing certificate. And that was a beautiful thing. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a sort of a soft vote of confidence. Um, and, and a big thing from the law society uh, because they're like any professional body that they've obviously quite politicized mm, themselves. Mm, and so mm. they could have, it would have been easier for them to say, oh, no, look, yeah. we're on the side of caution, we'll wait. Mm. Um, but they didn't. And that was good. So I, um, I get tired. I don't do too much work, but I, and I always take my cases uh, very seriously. We had some sort of a fight over a, an AVO to do with a, uh, who was going to administer medicine to a, a cat. <laughs> And um, and I was really worried about it because they, you know it was in Queanbeyan Court and luckily we got I have to I always pray before I go in because once I take on a case I really want to get a good result for people mm. and, I, and these people it was a big deal for them because they were going to lose their gun licenses and oh. it was going to have an offend they didn't want to have an AVO and of course you kind of think oh it's probably you know six of one half dozen the other you can't just believe your clients but it turns out that they did seem to be in the right anyway that, there was a great magistrate who just said he took one look at it and he uh, i love this man it's good to see there are still magistrates like that he said this is the stupidest case i've ever seen since <laughs> since the fight over the wheelie bin and, and and i want you both to leave this court and you know get out of here and oh. i don't want it and that was just great I, oh. i've had quite a few and i didn't want to take that case on as i said but um uh, but I usually get a very good result. So, yeah. Oh. But I do have a GoFundMe. Kudos. Yes, you have a GoFundMe. And, uh, and, and if, if people can circulate this, I mean, this has yes, been a, a, the longer the talks we have, the better they are. Mm. And this has been quite a long one. And, and if people can, I'll be so happy if people just know who I am, you yes. know, in the sense that they, they, they listen to me speak today. They know what people think. I did another sort of two-hour one um, 
with um, the citizens citizens organization or something. It's, um, and that was good too mm. um, because we were able to talk about China and we were able to, anywhere we, and this one particularly for the Afghan people, um, it'd be great if you can get trapped because as long as it's circulated. I mean, if I had the support of all the Afghan Australians, I tell you, I would, I would, I would skip into prison because you just kind of think, well, they're the people that really matter. And, oh. um, uh, and yeah, so it's important for me that people get to know. I, it was one of my, uh, proudest moments when i showed the documentary um that i've made um low budget documentary in sydney and there were about 20 um uh afghan australians came um organized by uh, uh zoe who uh who, who did the petition but it was not and, and I, for some reason i had this vision they're all going to come in, in robes and <laughs> swallow and and, and be, they're all like 20 and 30 and they were lawyers and very smartly dressed um, but it was so nice. They were so grateful to hear someone to say the essential message. Uh, you know, the West has a lot to be embarrassed for, and we are not so smart. And we need to we, we need to apologise, Afghans, for a certain arrogance, cultural arrogance, but as much as anything else, to say, you know, you are uh, brown people don't know what's going on, and we know what's going on. And tut tut. Mm. So if only you could be more like us. And and they were happy to see someone to say, oh, I'm here to say of that course. I can see that that of is. Course. Uh, that is incredibly I- cringeworthy, and um, uh, and we've got a lot to apologise for. And uh, it doesn't mean that uh, you know other things didn't go wrong as well. But a, a great place to start any relationship is to clean your side of the street, and that, mm. and they were so happy, and that made me proud. You know, oh, I love that. And and I just want to say that the GoFundMe link, your Twitter link, and your YouTube channel, I will link it to this podcast. So if everyone could please kindly. Uh, subscribe to that and share it because that's exactly what keeps – I mean, the fact that David McBride has come out and is risking his life to do this for Australians, for Afghans, for the citizen of, a, of the world, I think we owe it that much to circulate his work and to make his name known, as we all know. And the honour of having you, David, the as an Afghan, as an Australian – I don't even know where to begin to say thank you. There is no words, there is no start, there is no finish. But sincerely from the bottom of my heart, I want to just the what you're doing is not easy to your your former wife, to your two daughters. Thank you with all my heart. May God make your path easy. May you be guided, may you be blessed and may you reap the rewards that you so deservedly uh, uh, are in need of because what you have done for us as not as an Afghan nation, not as an Australian nation, but as a whole society of a world in general, you have given us hope, a light that we did not know existed until we saw the examples of people like yourself. So thank you sincerely for being that light that we can look at and know that there is that beam of hope that we can still latch onto. And it's people like you that God brings into the world that allows us to have us to continue to believe. And so for that, thank you sincerely. And I have to say in response that this is probably the best, not just interview, but the best couple of hours I've, I've spent since in the 10 years uh, in that I really... Uh, a, it's been enjoyable, but I really feel that I'm speaking to the people that matter and, and, and I really feel that we're, that impossible task that we spoke about, we are, we're climbing that wall anyway. So I'm so grateful to you. And all I would ask is that, you know, it, I'm so proud of our conversation. I've loved it. You've been well researched and, 
uh, fun and intelligent, and it's enabled me to tell my story. So if we can just get this out there, that's Absolutely. all I ask. Um, Absolutely. I think, um, you know, uh, we might not achieve – well, I th- I'm not going to be pessimistic. I say w- people will, might have to come after me and people might have to come after them. But we can change the world for the better. And what, what, what? Who doesn't want to be involved in some sort of heroic um, mm. escapade? Um, and uh, so, uh, mm. you know, let's blow up that Death Star. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you so so much for giving me this opportunity. Thank you, David. Thank you, our hero. As we say in Farsi, Karaman. Thank you for the champion that you are, David McBride.